0: Rise before them and welcome David Fincher, Ed Norton, and Brad Pitt. Thanks, sugar tits. Uh,
1: Not to be egotistical, but um, we kind of knew that an award like this was in our future, (laughs) especially uh, Especially after we read the reviews of our movies, like these ones.
0: A load of rancid, depressing swill from start to finish. Rex Reed, the New York Observer. A witless mishmash of whiny, infantile philosophizing and bone-crushing violence. Kenneth Turan, L.A. Times. He's a cop. Washington's poster child for What's Wrong with Hollywood, Anita Bush, Hollywood Reporter.
1: The most cheerfully fascist film since Death Wish, it's macho porn, is the sex movie Hollywood has been moving toward for years. That was Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. this movie is not only
0: anti-capitalist, but anti-society, and indeed, (laughs) anti-God. Alexander Walker, Evening Standard.
1: So, uh, the only question is, in a moment like this, uh, which is surely a career pinnacle for all three of us, uh, what would Tyler Durden say? He might say, uh, thank you for giving an award to our movie, which is about how meaningless awards like this actually are.
2: Stop. to the extra credits of David Fincher's Fight Club. I'm Trey. Today we are covering one of the most controversial mainstream time capsule movies of all time. Fight Club is of course directed by David Fincher and it is Fincher month on our show. We've already published a review for The Killer and I think a pretty in-depth conversation about what the quote unquote David Fincher project is all about. And I think we came to the conclusion that he is just such an exciting filmmaker that is constantly searching for disciplined perfectionism and focusing on imaginative world building. And he brings such a specific clinical filmmaking approach to the most depraved things in the world. And I think Fincher is famously obsessed with masculinity and the psychology of the human condition. And really, I think deep down, he is just tried to figure out how our culture has monetized addiction and like what that's done to our psyches. So he is one of my favorite filmmakers. He is the pop culture director of multiple generations now, and he is a zeitgeist filmmaker commenting on contemporary problems. So there are moments where he is prophetic in his storytelling. And there are also moments where he is sort of riding the wave of cultural conversations. And then sometimes He's a little bit of an asshole. He's a little bit of a contrarian. He's kind of pushing the red buttons of society. And and there's a little bit of a fine line between being a non-conventional, provocative filmmaker and someone just trying to like monetize cultural anxiety, sometimes ironically. And I think there is an argument that we can talk about today that David Fincher is ironically the Tyler Durden of filmmakers at times, even if I don't always agree with that. Fight Club is probably the go-to movie to defend any anti-Fincher tanks. Uh, so to hear to help me to talk about the sometimes cautionary tale of Fight Club and sometimes the indulgent, absurdist film of Fight Club, I'm luckily joined by our returning guest, James Steck. My my own alter ego, Uh actually don't know which one of us is Tyler Durden in this situation. Yeah, maybe
3: we should circle back to that at the end.
2: Yeah, I'm down. How are you doing, man?
3: Good. I'm really excited to be back on the show. It's been a little bit of time since we've last uh, chatted in person. Yeah. I guess this time virtually.
2: Yeah.
4: Um.
3: Yeah. But I'm pumped to talk about this movie.
2: Yeah, I am too. I, you know, thank you for coming on. First off, we we actually yeah, you know we just said we haven't seen each other since you moved to Colorado. Obviously, off mic, we've talked about which movies that we thought would be fun to explore next on our show. And Kelsey couldn't be here today because she's doing midterms. And we thought what would be a funny movie to talk about in depth (laughs) with just like two white straight guys that, that aren't taking themselves super seriously, but also want to take movies seriously. And obviously we both love the lighthouse. And so we were thinking we might want to save that one for when we're in person
3: Oh, yeah. Building up to that one.
2: I know that's going to be a huge one for us. That's just going to... We're going to have to clear out four hours for that episode. Uh, But obviously, it's Fincher month for us. And I thought Fight Club was a movie that even though I don't care for all that much, like historically, even though I think it's a very interesting movie to talk about, you know, it's kind of like The Lighthouse. It's sort of similar to Fight Club in some themes. But what is your personal relationship to Fincher and Fight Club specifically?
3: i I don't actually remember the first time that I watched Fight club um it's been this kind of nebulous story that mm-hmm. I've always had knowledge of um in my like knowledge of film history um but i think I think I remember watching it at some point in high school middle high school uh, maybe sixteen or seventeen years old and other than that I've seen Pretty much every David Fincher film, except for um, Panic Room and Mank, and Mm. the most recent one, The Killer. Yeah. Um, But he is also one of my favorite uh, directors, and I think his movies are just amazing Um, and have this interesting quality. You kind of touched on it, of like addiction, and you can't really look away from his films because they're so beautiful and also haunting.
2: Yeah, there is something I guess. I feel like, well, first off, I love the social network. You know that. I'm a I'm a oh, huge yeah. social network head. And I think Zodiac is iconic for obvious reasons. 7 is near and dear to my heart in like nostalgic ways, but also it's just like a psychopathic movie and like it's kind of insane and I and I love that about it. Uh, and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is such an underrated thriller, maybe even like a light masterpiece of his work. Um, But I think his movies are so impressive at deconstructing men who specifically men who think they are victims or martyrs of sorts and men who are like truly fragile and emotionally corrupt and trying to figure out where to place that, I guess, self-reflection on their corrupt or their own culpability and society's failures. And I think he has such a unique position on masculinity. And then also because of his career in commercials and music videos, he has a fascinating um, idea about consumerism. And I'm like endlessly interested in his cinematic project and his motivations as an artist. Even if I don't subscribe to all of his philosophies, which we're going to get into today, Um, he is kind of just a maybe the most provocative mainstream filmmaker.
3: Wow. Um, That's a big thing to say for sure. Yeah. To be the most provocative.
2: Well, do you feel like, do you feel like you, when you talk to people who love movies that they, that they've, uh, that would know someone like David Fincher? Like, I feel like he's in that Wes Anderson. Kelsey and I talked about this on our project episode of him being in these, in this very specific tier of filmmakers who have figured out ways to commodify their aesthetic and like monetize their
3: vibe. I think so. I feel like he's, you know, on par in terms of name recognition with a Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that he has a specific aesthetic that he's built and cultivated and paid close attention to yeah, um, over the years and, and decades.
2: Yeah. And I think Fight Club is a good movie for you to c- come on for because it is something that is fun to overread. And me and you, and like when we talk about movies as like longtime listeners know, we like to sometimes over psychologize over intellectualize over the work because yeah. it's just more interesting in that way. But this movie like lends itself to that. It is like almost, it is such a contradictory text. I feel like it was built and like manufactured in such a way to have the audience argue with it. And I know that is true for the author of the novel. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the movie feels like it's built in that way, too. And so in that way, while it's interesting, it's also like a red flag movie. And Kelsey and I talk about this on the pod pretty often. But I'm curious, do you have any red flag movies? And and to tell you what I mean by that is like basically when when you're out in the world, like if you're casually talking about movies with someone at a bar, are there any films that come to mind as ones that are like Fight Club or if someone says that they don't go to the movies often but they love Fight Club, you're kind of like, "Okay, that's cool. You like Fight Club because that tells me you like movies quite a bit, which is something that we can talk about. But then do you also like sort of hold your breath like because if that is their favorite movie, I think we understand culturally maybe there are weirdly radical relationships to films like that. So even though I love Fincher movies, I also recognize that. Do you have any red flag movies that would jump out?
3: Man, that's an interesting question. My first thought went to so I'm a I'm a high school teacher. Um, if listeners don't know, mm-hmm. my first thought went to some um students who I know are like blossoming uh cinephiles. Yeah. And they often turn to, you know, The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Sure. They turn to uh recently a movie called The Menu, mm-hmm. um, which is a social satire. Mm-hmm. um and i can tell that there's a taste being developed um by these kind of blossoming cinephiles um that is curious about how a film is made and the subtleties that a film can have and the nuances a film can have in terms of like engaging with audience and engaging with an entire culture mm-hmm. um but i don't know if i have like massive red flag movies i'm not a huge well actually i'm lying <laughs> one just came to mind and it is uh top gun and oh
2: wow yeah
3: wait the, 80s, the,
2: the tony scott one or the most recent one both
3: of them and sometimes the mission <laughs> impossible films which i do love very much i think sure. they're amazing um other kind of uh just solely action-based films that kind of provoke our american uh anxieties yeah i guess um in terms of imperialism and and our own nationalist kind of uh, identities that we carry with us um and those action films often like exploit those fears that we have um
2: yeah that's really i mean that top gun is not one i thought about but especially top gun maverick is something that we talked about on our show of really trying to the movie struggles to fully get out any coherent ideas and not that it needs one. It's an entertaining like blockbuster made, you know, billions plus of dollars. And we all saw it together like me, you and Kelsey at the IMAX, which was a really like, and obviously like a technical achievement. And it was a pretty incredible theatrical experience. Um, But that movie obviously had some, some pretty tough ideas if you want to call them that. But I, uh, I was going to say that the most obvious one for me is probably Taxi Driver. And I think that's probably number one of, of a red flag movies as they come. Like Christopher Nolan's a good example of other movies too. It's tough because when I say red flag, I mean like I am immediately buying into the, buying into this idea that I'm speaking to someone who understands like there are significant American movies being made and this is not just like an escapist art form. You kind of have to get past that when you're talking to people about yeah. movies. And so as soon as someone says like, you know, The Dark Knight, Inception, Taxi Driver, Joker, Top Gun. I go, okay, you're watching movies. Um, Right. Those films often, I think Taxi Driver, for for me specifically, I feel like it leaves too many ideas underdeveloped. And so then the movie allows for such radical interpretations. And we're going to get to that today with Fight Club. But other ones in our generation that are notable are like The Wolf of Wall Street, um, which we just covered on our show for three hours. It's like one of the best yeah. critiques on the American dream, but it also has a ton of problems and it makes it a flawed masterpiece in a lot of ways. And it leaves itself open for massive, like widely misinterpreted uh, ideas of like what that movie is actually trying to say. And then I think like what you said about Nolan, obviously there's a lot of love for Nolan in our generation too, but Nolan is is also the dorm room favorite filmmaker where you can't help but like hesitate a little bit when hearing someone's favorite film is a Nolan movie. Uh, and I was trying to figure out like the reason I asked the question is because I was trying to figure out what is this like through line of like sometimes special films, but also like weirdly problematic movies, even though I, I can't think of a better word right now than that. And I think it's like all these films that deal with anti-authority or are anti-establishment. And I think even yeah. you know, Villeneuve is in this category or like Chazelle mm-hmm. is my favorite like living filmmaker that is young, uh, like a young living filmmaker. He's my favorite one working, but he still has this in his movies as like a reoccurring theme about like overly ambitious people that are also anti the man, quote unquote. And sometimes these movies can get you uh, politically frustrated fans because the films are like inherently politically oriented. And so... That's the that's the that's biggest f- theme I can find between yeah. all of these.
3: It's funny you say that. I I recently, this week, I just started watching Peaky Blinders, mm-hmm. um, which I'm really into. I love the story. I love the characters. Um, but it also has... It's a very popular show and I'm sure some of your listeners have, have watched this TV show. Probably, yeah. Um, and it does tackle kind of similar ideas about anti-the-man, anti-institutions. Institutions Mm -hmm. Institutions are corrupt. They're ruining us. And so we have to turn inward to ourselves and our own individualism to try and overcome these things.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I, I don't know exactly what it is about that, but there is some kind of like, I guess this evergreen libertarianism that is like running through a lot of kind of controversial movies about the individual fighting back against some kind of structure or system and then how it fights back and then who it blames along the way varies differently throughout all these movies that we've mentioned. And yes. I think with uh with Fight Club, um I like when I first watched this, like so I have young parents and when I first saw this movie I was probably like an 8 or 9 year old and so I didn't understand all these like anti-establishment themes when I was watching it, but it was weird I remember as a kid watching this film for the first time having this very like specific experience of seeing like a lot of people my dad's age dress like tyler durden and kind of have that like punk rock pop sensibility and my dad's my dad was the age of edward norton's character and brad pitt's character in that film when i was watching it oh wow and at that time in like 2003 ish and I think at a young age, I remember being confused by the movie, and then revisiting it in my teenage right. years, it was just kind of like an absurd film that was entertaining. And then revisiting it again, in like my young twenties, probably probably sometime in college, um, I remember thinking the twist was cool, but it, maybe it didn't hold up once you knew what was going on. And now I actually think I have I've had my best experience with it in rewatching it this past week, even though I have problems with it. Uh, But I think when I was watching it, when I was younger, I was trying to compare it to twist ending movies without really kind of like thinking about what it was even trying to say or what it was trying to represent in the moment. Like it reminded me of movies like The Usual Suspects or Primal Fear, but I don't think I had the language to express maybe what I felt complicated about when it came, when it came to what the movie was saying and its themes. And also I think there is a element to the movie being a little bit indulgent that like, you don't have to be that self-aware to pick up on like how the movie kind of loves itself and hates itself at the same time, which is just like a common theme of all Fincher's work. Uh, But 1999 is interesting because that's when this movie is released. And we also get the matrix um, within a few months of this movie.
3: Oh, that's right.
2: And it's so fascinating that both of these films are basically about people needing to wake up, mm-hmm. and yes. Fight Club takes itself so seriously in that idea of people needing to wake up and be red pilled, like using that Matrix terminology, and yep. um, and yeah, I don't know. It, it was it's interesting looking back at the film and seeing this kind of like archetype of the. A lonely, isolated, fragile everyman that runs from Edward Norton's character to Neo in The Matrix, like these men who are like really afraid of being trapped in cubicles and not having any individuality and just being like everyone else. Um, yep,
3: lacking purpose.
2: Right, exactly. And I-, I think why maybe these movies don't speak to me, I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's the fact that like they are about uh these what you're saying, like these purposeless characters that are also crossing over with like these frightening, tragic falls into chaos, like a taxi driver. And those stories never appealed to me as a teenager. So I didn't really care about this movie deeply as a teen. But this is a movie for and and almost about like generational angst. So I'm surprised yes. that like neither of us I, I am I am pretty surprised actually that neither I had... of us seem to care that much when our teenagers about this movie.
3: Yeah, I had, I think, a similar experience. First time I did watch it, though, I I had a similar experience to the book, The Catcher in the Rye,
4: uh-huh.
3: um, in which this young boy Holden Caulfield is constantly commenting on the contradictions of society and people, and mm-hmm. and so on. And I watched this film around the same time in high school that I read that book, and I was like, you know, these guys, they get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they get something. About the world that people just aren't seeing. And of course, you know, 12, 13 years later, revisit these things, specifically Fight Club last night. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't help thinking, uh, some, you know, they need help. This guy needs some assistance yeah, and somebody to like, love him and like, look after him a little bit. Yeah. And I felt the same way about rereading The Catcher in the Rye as a teacher, teaching it as a text. I'm like, this kid needs some help. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so it's funny the shift in perspective of relating and then distancing and realizing this is problematic a little bit.
2: Yeah. And maybe the undeveloped underdeveloped in certain ways where it is kind of crucial for the film to be developed for its ideas to make sense and for its satire to actually be fully realized. Yeah, that's key. Um, and what movie I kept thinking of actually that isn't similar all that much outside of the like lonely, fragile man, but was Joker because Joker uh, made a billion dollars. And so this
3: kind of like
2: American mental health crisis that was so timely in 1999 um, is even more relevant now. And so it's interesting Mm -hmm. about Fight Club is it made no money. It lost money and it's become a cult classic and we'll get into that in a bit. Wow.
3: I didn't Uh, know that.
2: Yeah. And so you would think that a movie like this, because it's probably David Fincher's most watched movie would be more powerful, I guess in the consciousness of Americans, maybe it is. I just as like a kind of, uh, uh, an anecdotal thing. I just like asked my high schoolers recently this past week, uh, how many of you know about fight club and like immediately, like everyone joked like, Hey, we don't talk about fight club. And then I asked like, it's huh. like Oh, if you don't mind, like raise your hand if you've seen fight club and almost like nobody raised their hands, but they had the, the language for, to talk about the movie which I thought was fascinating. And I, again, I think it speaks to the, the evergreen, if you will, qualities to this movie of being about like generational anxiety, which was David Fincher's like intention with it. And we, we can get into that in a second. So on today's episode, we are going to be talking a bit about the protein of the film, maybe a little bit of a synopsis of the plot for people who haven't seen the movie in a long time. So spoiler warning, we will be kind of getting into the movie and, and deep spoilers we're going to go into its interpretations, its themes or ideas through its characters, the Fight Club itself, its many different like metaphors, and even though that sounds pretentious, we are going to unpack that. And whether this movie is actually kind of radical or not, and then at the end of the episode, as we usually do, we'll both give some extra credits to the movie. Uh, so, listeners, if you're prepared for an interesting conversation about why exactly Fight Club has become this gospel text for so many men. Uh, And I'm not talking about just troubled men. I'm talking about like self-aware, well-read men, uh, isolated, detached men, like across the board. And like why and how has a movie focused um, so heavily on consumerist culture been warped into a film about the emasculation of men? Um, Almost like its lead character, Tyler has become like this unironic or I guess ironic poster boy for, for men's rights. We're going to get into that. So if listeners are interested in that type of conversation, just stay and we'll be getting into some nuance. You
1: ready?
3: Let's talk about men. <laughs>
1: For 6 months I couldn't sleep. And this is how I met Tyler Dirt. With
0: your feet in the air and your head on the ground. I want you to do me a favor.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? I've never been in a fight, you? No, but that that's a good thing. No it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight?
1: Oh, you hit me in the ear well jesus i'm sorry oh that was perfect
2: okay so in the late 90s david fincher is coming off the game james we both just revisited the game yes. this week were you a fan that was your first time right
3: yeah i'd never seen the game before i'd even heard of it okay. um so i i recently asked trey um you know what's another? What's like a bonus David Fincher film that I haven't seen that would be a good like backup to Fight Club? And he mentioned the game, so I checked it out. Um, I found it very enjoyable as a watch. Like I was consistently entertained, mm-hmm. um, and it was like weird and wacky, and I laughed. And it was like dark at times, yeah, <laughs> and uncomfortable. Um, but I, I think it's struggled with what you said a little bit. Um, and what we'll talk about with fight club is this like underdeveloped thematic idea mm-hmm. um, or multiple underdeveloped thematic ideas um, that were running through some of the characters and the plot. So overall really liked it, had fun with it. Um, yeah. But it made me just a little generally confused as to is, is there a message here? Is there not?
2: Yeah. So, I, th- I think the, the message of the wealthy being like kind of not no longer attached to their own humanity is interesting, but yeah, the movie yeah. kind of confuses itself because it seems more interested in the thrills, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Like, I think for Fincher's mainstream popcorn movies that are tight, concentrated thrillers, the game is pretty great, um, almost objectively great. And I, but I will really say, fun. a ton of fun. I'm personally more of a panic room guy myself. The reason I recommended the game, um, is because I think it is in that tier of popcorn thrillers with some ideas, but it's really just a great time, um, watching yeah. a movie. And I think panic room, the game, and probably his most recent film, Michael Fassbender's, uh, the killer is in that space too. Um, but panic room, I just love Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart's amazing. In it and Forrest Whitaker's great. And I, James, I don't think you've got to watch either, that. Right. Yeah. no, It's awesome. I can't wait for you to watch that. But uh, So in the late 90s, Fincher is in this popcorn thriller space and also trying to squeeze a few big ideas in there. And then around that time of making the game, he reads the 1996 novel of the same name, Fight Club. And Fincher thought, okay, I want to make a radical movie. I want to make a a big budget, non-conventional movie like $70 million movie that is a little bit of a fuck you to the world. And I'm going to do it through Fox of all places, which is like a very Gen X thing to do. And it's a zeitgeisty movie speaking to um, this generational anxiety that Fincher uh, really felt like it was his moment to do that. Like if he was ever going to do a generational movie, it would be at this point in his career, which You know, doing a Zeitgeist movie isn't unlike a lot of Fincher projects, like how I've talked about a lot on our podcast. The Social Network being one of my favorite movies is because of what it's saying about the moment. And I think it is Mm -hmm. like this movie, Fight Club, and The Social Network are deeply commenting on contemporary masculinity and the cost of ambition in very big ways uh, to an audience that is going to be like reactive and like extremes because it's such a contemporary film. But Fight Club, unlike most of his movies, like I said earlier, was surprisingly a critical and commercial disappointment. And it really wasn't until DVD sales and cable runs that the movie became quotable and like a cult classic, and would have been an incredibly memeable movie. And it still is, like a like heavily. Memed. Oh yeah. Um, but it's also become like the Reddit of movies because there are countless essays about how Fight Club speaks to disenfranchised and marginalized men in the 21st century. And there are also countless essays about how this movie empowers alt-right communities who love Tyler Durden um, and have kind of ran away with their own interpretations of this film as counterculture, as anti-feminist really taking all the most depraved beats from this movie and framing the film as a story, trying to reclaim individuality, how you were putting it earlier or like just patriarchy and households and getting right. away from, you know, quote unquote woman's tyranny. And we'll get into all that bullshit. I'm sure in depth today. And, uh, it makes this movie more complicated than necessary. But when yeah. Fincher was asked about this recently and he tries not to talk about it, but he was doing an interview for the killer, Fincher said it wasn't his job to cleanly interpret this movie for those audiences. And he said that obviously Tyler Durden is not someone for anyone to look up to and that he's not responsible for how this movie fight club can be misinterpreted. Uh, Just like how any piece of art can be misinterpreted. The artist can't be blamed. He thought he basically thought it was more of an indictment on on where our culture is at currently. Um, And so I think that's probably an argument for another day. Uh, But Right. I think it's kind of like this timeless argument about artistic responsibility. Like Kelsey and I have been on record on our show saying that filmmakers working with budgets of millions of dollars shouldn't really be able to take that innocent stance of like a working class artist by saying, oh, I'm making art that speaks to me. So it's not my job to interpret it cleanly for other people. And we've said that that is pretty convenient because these are millionaires dealing with like an art form that has been monetized to such a point where art pieces are commercial entertainment products with like hopes of provoking thought. So there is, I think there is a lot more responsibility than that of a painter, which is what Fincher compared himself to um, kind of indirectly in in this interview. So what, what do you think about that, about the filmmaker trying to distance himself from the reaction? Cause it seems like a natural thing to do. You sort of understand you sympathize with it, but at the same time, this is like a $70 million movie.
3: Yeah, of course, you know, I'm I'm going to sympathize with, you know, a, a lot of art comes from the subconscious and then we try to get other people to interpret it and, and to put it out and hopefully connect with others. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's ultimately controlled by a conscious mind at the end of the day. Right. And I don't even think we have to get into the complexities of that. At the end of the day, you know, if you have a massive platform. Yeah. And you have millions of people listening to you and watching your stuff. Um, I do think that you have a slightly elevated responsibility for how a message is received. And the intention of your message should be kind of clear. Art, specifically movies in this conversation, it moves people, it, it changes behavior, and it becomes part of like our culture. Um, so I do think that responsibility should be taken. Uh, Carefully.
2: Yeah, agreed. I think that the bit about platform that you were saying makes the most logical sense to anybody who's being rational about this situation, which is like David Fincher's made his like career off of this myth that he overworks his actors and like um creates these highly stylized, uh glossy, uh greasy products that are really memorable and they're all a little bit depraved. And so For him to kind of like monetize his whole aesthetic and vibe and then to say it's not my responsibility uh, the way people interpret my movies. It's like you create a whole economy based on the way your movies look. I mean streamers are trying to copy David Fincher's aesthetic like me and Kelsey talked about this on our on our David Fincher project episode but Ozark literally just looks like David Fincher made, you know, a four or five season television show. Like there's a bunch of television shows that look blue and gray or yellow and Brown and are shot and, and, yeah. and are panning the cameras in all very sp- specific ways and are always trying to center the frame or trying to do different things with VFX and create this like digital mask over their movies or television shows. And so he's become like one of the more influential artists in this space. And so it is weird for him to say something like that. It's just very convenient, but that is the kind of like poison pill that filmmakers like Fincher take when they decide to capitalize on the opportunity to make a film about the contemporary world. Because when you do that, you have to like strike a fine balance and be like very reflective of the moment. And if you don't, then your movie gets more deeply interrogated than films that just stick to a commercially attractive, convenient American past. If that makes sense, which is why even though fight club, isn't there will be blood or Goodfellas, I think movies that Fincher has done like a social network uh, are in that tier of masterpieces, not only because they're incredibly well-made like PTA's movie or Scorsese's film, but also because contemporary films, in my opinion, are much harder stories to accomplish uh, a a clear through line and get one across because audiences are going to be so reactionary in the moment to art that is commenting on our current moments. So Fight Club Mm -hmm. was like never going to be an easy movie to make because of what it was saying about the nineties or what it was saying about a generation being kind of like, uh, disassociating from its own reality. And, um, and I think only a few realized thoughts, uh, kind of actually get through fight club because of that, because it's such a controversial movie and because it's speaking to a moment, not perfectly. And Fincher probably doesn't want to talk too much about fight club because Ultimately, the novel just isn't very good. I tried reading it this week, and it just kind of sucks. And I just I, and I know that sounds rude or like pretentious as someone who's never written uh, a, a book, but it, it really is pretty bad. And it's huh. crazy to me that Fincher was interested in this to make this into a film. Um, I'll, I'll explain why in a second why he was kind of provoked to make the movie. Uh, but ultimately, bad stories can be easily misinterpreted in bad ways. And I think because of yes. fin- Fincher's – this, the novel's lucky, uh, and the author of the novel too, because Fincher is a stylistically insane and emotionally prickly skilled person. And so he's able to turn a provocative but ultimately, I think, incoherent polemic novel into something really entertaining in Fight Club – and very not very much non-conventional, like not like probably unlike any other movie a regular moviegoer has seen. Like they probably haven't seen very m- much of like a surreal genre in theaters before, mm-hmm. or anything like satirical, really. Um, so yeah, I think if if he accepts that the film you know could have been developed better in certain ways, then we kind of give. Fincher a little bit more sympathy, but because he seems to like not want to comment on the movie or never like kind of apologize for not doing a better job developing, developing his ideas. It it always becomes like an annoying reaction to me, even though I love Fincher and his movies. Like I just don't understand why he doesn't give that any time of the day. Um, okay. So some quick story protein for anyone who hasn't seen the film in a bit in fight club, Edward Norton plays our unnamed narrator who is sometimes referred to as Jack, which I believe is a joke. To the myths of children's stories, uh, where Jack
3: is usually like so. a main
2: character. I couldn't figure that element of this movie out because he's really just like unnamed for most of the film.
3: I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because as I was watching, I kept getting confused. And near the end, I was like, you know what? I think he's just referring to himself in the third person in some weird, yeah, humorous way.
2: I think he was trying to say that he's an every man, and so he kept referring to himself almost as like Jack, I guess, as like this kind of yeah. like. This character that we know so well, this archetype that he's like filling in, in reality. Um, but for the sake of this podcast and to not be confused, I'm just gonna either call him the narrator or Norton. And like when he eventually evolves, we'll we'll switch off. But the the narrator is written as a depressive, insomniac, detached everyman who is dissatisfied with his job of assessing insurance claims. I believe that's his job. And in order to really like feel something he joins support group meetings for diseases. He doesn't have, (laughs) and he uses these meetings as sort of a substitute for therapy. This movie doesn't deserve like a kind Uh like mental health reading, but you definitely can like interpret this movie later on, like 20 years later or 25 years later at this point that this movie, it seems like is having a small comment about the lack of access to mental health resources for, you know, characters like Jack or this, this narrator. And so, at these talks, he meets another imposter, uh, Helena Bonham Carter's Marla Singer, who is mm-hmm. a kind of like modern femme fatale, kind of like the yes. inverse of a of a manic pixie dream girl of sorts. She really huh. uh, makes this character feel like they are just supposed to be a a mirror of the narrator's angst. And Bonham Carter does like a fantastic job of of trying to like reflect this time of rebellious nineties woman too. But like ultimately it is, it is her character is to basically be this mirror of our narrator and like what he's going through. And after meeting Marla, our narrator meets uh, the anarchic and hyper-masculine soap salesman, Brad Pitts, Tyler Durden, (laughs) who sort of resembles everything Norton is not. And on top of that, Uh, is also highly critical of the narrator's entire identity. And I think from there, as soon as he meets Brad Pitt on the the airplane, the absurdism of the film kind of takes off and you realize you're watching a different movie and which is really cool. And I really like the first hour and a half of this film because of that. And, um, Tyler as pop as kind of like populist figures do starts kind of like, ranting about some universal problems. Like he starts ranting about materialism and consumer culture. And he starts making fun of Norton's whole aesthetic because his vibe is formed out of like a consumerist IKEA lifestyle. And exactly. Uh which makes sense. All of that you're in. Like as an audience member in the 90s, in the 2020s, you're like, yeah, fuck consumer culture. Like this, I'm into this, whatever this theme is, whatever this idea is. This Tyler guy, I'm skeptical of his whole thing, his whole shtick. But like, I'm into like kind of what he's saying right now. And then from there, the two of these guys become very weird, unlikely friends who start their mm-hmm. own their own support group. Let's call it uh, for detached men who all believe they are a part of a self proclaimed disenfranchised group, and to sort of feel something and get out their anger at the world, they start a Fight Club. Uh, of all places in the basement of a bar, which is not really something I thought about <laughs> like in no, as a neither kid, did I. Uh, but as an adult, I thought that was pretty smart. Um, and uh, as the group evolves, Tyler starts kind of morphing the club into something more sinister, something that as an audience member, you're kind of probably picking up if you're seeing it for the first time outside of theaters, like just recently, like probably about an hour into the movie that there's something else going on here. And we learn that Tyler is making the Fight Club into something called Project Mayhem. And this is where Mm -hmm. the populism of the movie evolves into like fascism for Tyler. And he leads this group of fragile men into vandalism in order to like disrupt social order, like huge Joker vibes at this point in the movie. And uh, like huge Dark Knight trilogy vibes going running throughout this film. I bet Christopher Nolan- They even-
3: paint a massive green smiley face on the side of some corporate building. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, he's got like a whole group of men in his grasp. So it does feel like that kind of Joker manipulation. And then Tyler kind of starts to accelerate his violent plans, uh, Mark kind of masked as revolution, but really as terrorism. And now there are like big Bane vibes by the end of the movie. (laughs) You kind of have like, Dark Knight yeah. rises like elements to the end of this film where you're having this yeah, uh, it's interesting that fascistic leader running a group of men who are just so detached. Um, and so Tyler's whole goal is is not really super clear, but you have an idea that he just wants to destroy the man, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Uh or I guess in literally the pillars of corporatism through burnt like blowing up buildings. So I, I think that is the surface goal. And then the more kind of like thematic goal, the one that like a lot of groups have run with in terms of loving this movie is that Tyler wants men to regain a sense of gendered purpose. And this is, yes. this is where the the twist begins and starts to unravel where our narrator Norton begins to disconnect from project mayhem. As we get closer to their major, like reveal of trying to blow up these credit card companies, uh, Norton starts to unravel in a sequence that is probably like 10 minutes too long. This movie is sort of long, but it is what it is. And as he's searching for Tyler, Norton begins to realize that he is a split personality and Mm -hmm. that Brad Pitt as Tyler is actually a figment of his imagination an alter ego of sorts, this projection that he's manifested because of his own alienation or nihilism, existentialism, whatever you want to call it. And our narrator realizes that he in fact is Tyler and has been running the fight club terrorist organization of purposeless and vulnerable men for a long time now. And I think even references that so much time has passed at one point and they show his bedroom door when he wakes up and like, is starting to have that realization that is like full of all these driver's license of the identities of the human man.
3: sacrifices. Yes.
2: Yes. Everybody it took <laughs> to sacrifice in order to make fight club work. And Norton S. Tyler now kind of realizes the mission of Project Mayhem is to blow up consumer credit company uh, Mm -hmm. skyscrapers across this massive city that is, I believe, unnamed. And they're really hoping that by blowing up these buildings that they will erase everyone's debt records, (laughs) which I find to be like a really funny uh, concept. Like nobody, they obviously plan for nobody to die in these explosions and they moved everybody out of the buildings. for you to kind of like suspend your disbelief or suspend your kind of like blame or or guilt or whatever. But I find it interesting that these characters are like, no one will have debt as long as the buildings don't exist anymore. Like they don't have records on the internet.
3: Right. As if this wasn't part of, you know, the digital digital world at all. Yeah.
2: That was a little bit confusing, but maybe it like is truly trying to be like an early nineties film, but I'm not, I'm not totally sure. But even then, yeah, it is kind of confusing, like what the whole plan is, but I guess that's not the point and uh so norton in an attempt to stop his other brad pitt personality from like accomplishing this goal of leading this uh this terrorist uh, mission he shoots himself in the head trying to prevent his alter ego of brad pitt from taking over but it's too late to stop the bombs and he slowly like bleeds out watching the building's collapse with marla by his side in a very wild final image of the movie especially because it's pre 9/11 and fincher movies yes, are known right. to be like prophetic but this is like specifically like very much like telling the future in a really weird way in a different way but still it, his movies do have that have that element to them always where you're like how much like Fincher seems very plugged in, but he doesn't like have social media, but he seems like very aware of just radical times all the time. And he just makes movies off them constantly. And I find that to be something that one, on one hand I appreciate. And the other hand, I find a little bit like I'm skeptical. Like, what are you doing this for exactly? And so that's basically the plot and fight club next to matrix. I think the matrix becomes like the quintessential generation X film as like an anarchistic, like, depraved uh, allegory for men trying Mm -hmm. to reclaim patriarchy and use the fight club idea as a way to recreate their own proto government of sorts, like full of rules that they only can create. And now I think what we'll obviously get into today are the interpretations of this movie and uh, how rough they are. And I think not by accident because fight club has like become infamous for how it attracts anti-feminist men and like detached isolated men while also appealing to well-meaning people like anti-consumerist yes. movie watchers mm-hmm. who are just like wanting to watch an entertaining film um and obviously it's not just like misguided people who love this film like there are people who like you don't have to be alt right to love fight club there's enough here for anybody to love this movie because it's so specific and so detailed and so transgressive considering the moment and there are a ton of, a ton of things to, to love uh, and we'll touch on those things. But for me, because me and you, we have not talked about our experience rewatching this movie at all, uh, even though the movie is supposed to have a fully developed metaphor about like this postmodern male ego and its relationship to consumerism, I think the satire complicates itself in many ways. And while I think it's a good movie, I do think it's a pretty weak satire if you even want to call it that do you agree with that are you in a similar place
3: that's an interesting assessment um i like did you like this movie (sighs) (laughs) i guess i should just start off the
2: podcast like that
3: i honestly don't know i don't know if i like this movie um upon rewatch i i acknowledge that it's very well made it's intriguing i had fun like i laughed through most of the movie yeah um I think, I think it is a very good satire, but I don't think it's an effective satire. I don't know if a line could even be drawn. Okay. I feel like maybe it has to be effective to be good, um, but maybe not. No, I,
2: yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, that's, I think that's a good point. I think Fight Club, in a way, I think has become one of the major examples of like the failures of American media literacy for both the audience and maybe even the creatives involved to a certain extent. And I know that sounds pretentious to listener. I mean, we're both teachers. So we're talking about text all the time, James Morso because of English literature and arts. But like me as a social sciences teacher, like we're talking about contemporary things all the time. We're talking about primary and secondary sources all the time and really breaking down texts and motivations and different, different interpretations of those texts. But this movie while is good, It just feels like every time I watch it, I watch something that happens that's interesting. And then immediately after that moment of something interesting happening that I want to think about for a second, there is a cringe moment about something else that contradicts its own ideas. And so while the movie is like very stylish and brutal and entertaining ways and transgressive, that's also like weirdly violent and then provocative and like unnecessarily complicated ways. And to me, I think why this isn't a great movie and it's just a good movie is because it loses its main mission, which I think is to confront the audience with this postmodern, heady critique on capitalism by telling us very straightforward, in a very straightforward way, that it's anti-consumerist and that Brad Pitt literally tells the audience the things we own end up owning us, but then it leaves us at the end of the movie with this like neoliberal ambiguous masculinity commentary with some weird thoughts about nihilism and fascism. So it's like a very, I found it like a very difficult movie to talk about where I was like venting to Kelsey, like in preparation for this podcast, even though she hasn't seen this movie in a very long time. And she was like, I have to rewatch it. Cause I, I just don't, I haven't seen it in so long, but I was like, I f- I'm finding it difficult just to get a clear thought about what doesn't work because I feel like I have to go into the artist mind and then pick apart their own, like, poor logic sometimes if that makes sense yeah
3: i i think that's accurate i think like the direct straight line through it is that anti-consumerism right the anti-consumer capitalist kind of system that we are caged behind Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways um and what he does though is like he, (laughs) he that's the through line but then he's got this thread multiple threads going about masculinity like you said about nihilism about mm-hmm. how masculine nihilism leads to fascism maybe um and yeah. all of these other metaphors that he opens but uh, doesn't really offer a solution to there's a direct solution to the anti-capitalist kind of line right blow up the banks basically right yeah um and start over but you know we don't get any real solution to the masculinity issue um other than shooting you know norton shooting his own face off basically to get right. rid of his like toxic masculine trait yeah um, but, but then all that,
2: the other commentary still lasts from the from, yeah. from throughout the film especially about gender roles like the movie addresses the role capitalism plays in ruining the middle class really well And then it gives Tyler some good sound bites about how materialism owns our identities and how we're all slowly becoming brands. And you're like, holy shit, watching this in 2023, like, that's true. Like, I do feel like I'm just a brand now, which, you know, and so while that's true in certain ways, and that's like what the middle class has been left with, like, we no longer can communicate with each other. We're like always trying to sell ourselves to one another. But then the movie, like what you're saying, doesn't stop there with its ideas of how consumerism is killing our culture. It also adds that our economy and the decline of traditional gender roles have both worked in unison to emasculate men.
3: Sorry, I just, so, do you know what I mean? I, I thought, thought I don't. Yeah, I was just thinking, did Jordan Peterson write the film?
2: Okay, so I was going to bring up Peterson because the author of the novel went on Rogan and was starting started to quote. he really yeah and i was like and so i i mean i I had a whole thing about this but i went and did a lot of research on the author of the novel and he did a rogan like four hour pod as people do on that show uh and i think it's like not by you know it's not a coincidence that the author of fight club is being platformed on joe rogan's podcast anyways so he started quoting jordan peterson i was like having this weird meta moment where everything just became fully realized for me where i was trying my best not to be skeptical of Fincher, but then I just realized that the text of Fight Club is just stupid. And so, like, even though it has anti-consumerist messages, <laughs> there, there's a ton of, you know, good novels out there that have anti-consumerist ideas. But what you're justifying your anti-consumerist message through is really important. And for this movie in this script and this screenplay and the, um, the novel to justify its, like, commentary about, like, how consumerism is killing us all through uh patriarchy being destroyed by women's rights and like feminism there's a
3: great line uh in the film where tyler durden is telling the men you know we're a generation of men raised by women yeah Um, right which seems to be his recurring kind of validation for why he's needing to blow up everybody's life
2: right and it's confusing and we'll talk about this when we Deep dive the themes a little bit more and ideas in this this movie, but it's confusing because Fincher is telling us that Tyler Durden is a fascist, and so yes, but he's also you know fascists are you know start off as populists. There's always some kind of like universal issue they're talking about, and for Tyler, that's consumerism. But then he sneaks into these ideas that are about toxic masculinity but then he also becomes a terrorist and you go, okay, well, the terrorism part was bad, but does that mean the other two things were supposed to be the universal bits where it was like the things you believed in as the filmmaker and the artist were anti-consumerism and also like anti-feminism, which is, which makes the movie confusing. And so I think the obvious point that this movie seems unintentionally aware of, and I think the novel too, and anybody who's like just a, a rational thinker when it comes to all these ideas is that patriarchy is the overruling power in corporations. So it's really wealthy mm-hmm. men who are exploiting fragile men. So the movie feels confused in how it's sort of like dog whistles to men's rights activists who feel empowered by mm. the film today, because yeah, it's clever, it feels like, you know, it feels like it's telling the like average man who feels emasculated that you can't actually prevent corporations from exploiting you So instead, because you can't blow up credit card company buildings, realistically, uh, what you can do is try to feel powerful at your home, you know, in your household life, and then at work too by threatening people. And as long as you commit to like more ancient gender roles and rebel against women's rights, then you'll be good to go because you'll have power in your daily lives or like be able to abuse that power.
3: And I think that's like the that's the surface level. Um, if somebody's watching this film just for that purpose, that's what they're gonna get from it. And that's where I think underneath that the film is pointing its finger at that and laughing at it and making fun of it. Yeah. And in that regard, that's why I feel like it's a good satire, but its platform is so massive, I don't think it was effective because it's a little bit murky. Right. Um
2: Well, I think I think it's not by accident that I I will, I'm going to go on the limb and say that I think it's actually not a good satire. I think it's a good, I think it's a movie with a political message and an economic message that I think are great. Then I think it, and what it tries to do in it's satirical elements of the film, especially specifically with masculinity and we'll get to it, I think are just bad. And I think my best example to like kind of prove why I think the satire that is specifically having to do with gender is so warped. And like, I think what we both agree on that. Is because so many men have like claimed the satire to be like influential right. to their lives. Like when I said like the writer of the novel went on Joe Rogan, um, I literally watched that whole interview like on speed. I oh didn't sit there for wow. four hours. I'd like just one and a half speed at it to try to get try to get <laughs> through it. And he had a he had a really, I think, insightful quote to like the the complicated conversation we're having, which he said that he wrote Fight Club because he wanted men to feel empowered by it. And he said, quote, a great anecdote doesn't leave people speechless. It leaves them competing to tell a better version of the same thing. And it feels like from that quote, the author of the novel seems like he wanted men to try to argue with the text as if they had like a better idea. And the text was literally written as like this provocative contradiction. And the author seems as a fight club. Yeah, literally as a fight club, like trying to compete with other male ideas Um, and it seems like he's just trying to get men angry at other men. So yeah, as a fight club. And so I think of the author as like a bit of a grifter in that way. And you see this in politicians all the time or in business people all the time. It's true of commercial artists sometimes too, but Mm -hmm. sometimes like self-aware fragile men, like the author of this book, they can like have these like seriously gross exploitative intentions and they know that they can push cultural red buttons as their only gateway to power in a culture still dominated by white men. But you can't tell white men directly that their own identity is like the root of a problem because then you have to, then you become like the villain of your own story. You become the villain of your own novel in a sense, in this case. And so instead you have to reframe the problem that men are facing, not as just capitalism, but as the decline of traditional gender roles. So basically women's rights are the problem of the film. I think because, the movie doesn't make itself clear or, or just because it makes itself clear on advertising and late capitalism being exploitative, it doesn't really kind of like forgive everything else about, about women. So it's a really complicated movie. And so I'm glad we're talking about it because it, I haven't heard a lot of great episodes for podcasts, talking about it and really finding the nuance because I think people are a little bit nervous to talk about it because yeah. we like it for contradictory reasons too, a little bit.
3: That's true. I like what you said at the end, though. There's no, there's no real redemption for the um, hate women, I guess, yeah. through line. Because um, as we came to the end of the film, I wrote this as like a note, like, um, and I think it's at the fault of David Fincher. Why is Marla in the movie? Um, yeah, you know. And I wrote to humanize, to to use as a plot device, um, mm-hmm. and so. I think that's definitely at the fault of Fincher that that character was used. Um, and I don't think he was trying to make a meta kind of message about that. Maybe he was, but yeah, I don't know. I was, I was unraveled at the end trying to figure out... Because Marla is such an interesting character to me. To not have some sort of more holistic purpose was confusing.
2: Well, he talked about... I listened to the Blu-ray commentary and he talks about how... Um, Bonham Carter's performance is incredible, but her character was basically to serve the purpose that, um, women are also guilty in like a consumerist culture. And then, like, even though she's going through it and like she's constantly shown in like suicidal moments of like wrapping a telephone cord around her neck or overdosing or whatever it is. Yeah. He's trying to show that there's obviously mental health concerns across genders, but also that he, that she is kind of, culpable in tyler's scheme and that's what fincher literally said on the commentary and i was like okay that is such a 1999 2000 commentary because he would he's made movies today that are so anti-fragile men and are so like blowing up the idea of men male ego that for him to say something like that in 1999 or 2000 really confuses me about like the social network for example like i get Mm. because that movie has a whole new outlook if you read it from that lens but it's hard to because like the beginning of that movie tells you what it's about like when Rooney Mara and uh Jesse Eisenberg are sitting across from the table and she says like you know you're just like an asshole basically that's you're going to go your whole life wondering why people don't like you and it's cuz you're an asshole and he yeah. tells you right away but Fight Club makes it I know it's you know 14 15 years before the social network sure. social network but his interpretation on Marla is is tough because then it gives like Credibility to all of the alt right lovers of Fight Club in a way,
3: it does. It's it he he writes her as as a passive um kind of acceptor of all of the kind of nihilistic abuse that goes on with with Norton's character.
2: Yeah, and so like I feel like yeah, it's tough to talk about the Fincher thing. We might as well just stick to the movie. Like we can get into the ideas yeah. in a second yeah, yeah. because. Fincher also just doesn't talk about his movies that often. And it's the smart commercial thing to do. And that's why he's like made so much money in his career. And that's why he's still making big budget films. And that's why he's like signed deals for Netflix because he's quiet about interpretations on his movies. Um, but I did notice in the film's release uh, in the time of 99 that he did call this movie his, the graduate. Like he viewed fight club as the graduate. He viewed fight club as his rebel without a cause um, as a film just about generational angst and there's always like some motivating factor of generational angst and in this fight club film it, it's about consumer culture and how the past generation kind of sold out and so i i think it's i think that's an evergreen idea in terms of how to sell a movie because he's like hey i'm just making like almost a coming of age movie or but about men in their 30s not in their 20s or exactly. in their teens. yeah um but when you unpack, I think, what Fincher means when he uses those examples and says that older generations fucked everything up. I rewatched Rebel Without a Cause, or I watched it for the first time, and then I rewatched The Graduate. And those movies are about men who feel sedated in more egalitarian times, where men have to work with women and not have a traditional hierarchy in the household. So those are the like the through lines of those films. So I, I think... What's confusing is is that gave me another lens on Fight Club because now I'm like, okay, does Fincher know what he's doing? Because that makes the movie even more gross uh, because even though The Graduate and Rebel Without a Cause are fine movies to pair with Fight Club spiritually, um, they're, those movies and what they're saying about gender are so regressive. And so yes. y- you can't help but have that lens on on the film. And even though I, I interpret Fight Club more as like Taxi Driver, which is like a movie filled with big ideas about systemic problems. And then here are the consequences of structural issues that if you Mm -hmm. don't alleviate or improve, then you get individuals that will try to do something chaotic. But ultimately I think fight club taxi driver, those other movies I mentioned kind of confuse their message by platforming the very men who are victimizing themselves so often. So I just think the framework of the scripts are tough. And I think the framework of how women are used in the scripts, like how you mentioned with Marla is really tough. So I wanted to talk to you today about Fight Club. And I wanted to concede a lot at the front why this can still be a good movie before we kind of like unpack and uh, and unravel a little bit of the, the problematic ideas of the film and also some of the stuff that works. Because I think this is like a really important American cultural artifact because it is like this landmark text satire of consumerism hyper masculinity nihilism extremism uh so i thought you know why not two straight white guys <laughs> unpack <laughs> what works and what doesn't work for us about one of the most weirdly controversial movies in american mainstream culture Ugh. um let's do it let's start off with uh all right. Let's start off with the consumerism bits. The e- I think the easiest part of this movie to understand what we both think as the through line, which is this kind of like postmodern assault on capitalism or capitalist sure. identity. Uh, on the Blu-ray commentary, there we see like a um, a bunch of product placement in the movie at the top. You see like you see mm-hmm. all this uh, a lot of Krispy Kreme. Yes, in the trash can, you see the Starbucks cup. And Fincher called it on the commentary his galactic tour of garbage because he does these great visual effect uh, movements with the cameras where he's kind of like moving in between trash, which is really sick all done in post. And I really love that part of this movie, but I love that this guy, Fincher, is is, is somebody who is explicitly anti-capitalist, but he's also someone completely contradictory as a person who has made like more music videos and commercials than movies. Um, But I think it's just a hilarious like, you know, anecdote about like how Fincher has these anti-consumerist beliefs and is like openly talking about them because he's also like operating within the capitalist system. But yeah, I think the comments on consumerism, like we've said, are the most evergreen ideas in this, in this movie. We get tons of visual representations of this. We see like really stylistically memorable, sometimes goofy because not everything ages well, like technically, but we get to see like how people in the nineties were a product of their clothes of their hairstyles uh their ikea furniture the aesthetic of ourselves telling others who we are without communicating or expressing literally who we are and so fight club much like the social network is again pretty knowing of what is to come as as we're all like being pressured to become brands in a lot of ways and in, in order to acquire capital like if we can't acquire yeah. financial capital then we might as well acquire social or cultural yeah, capital. Or identity
3: capital or in some way yeah um yeah And that, I mean, that part of the movie I I like and I agree with philosophically, Um, like we need to question our uh, tendencies of consumerism and and question our own contradictions that we're like, okay, living with. Yeah. Um, And it's funny that while I like agreed with, and a lot of this came from Tyler Durden, the alter ego, Brad Pitt, Mm -hmm. Um, while I was enjoying listening to his kind of waxing poetic about these various life philosophies. (laughs) <laughs> um, I <laughs> I couldn't help but kind of laugh at myself, at him a little bit because it just felt kind of pseudo intellectual, and also yeah, just reminded me of of like chronically online trolls, teenage boys specifically.
2: Yeah, well, hopefully, <laughs> um, hopefully teenage boys, and hopefully not you know thirty five year old men on chronically online on Reddit boards because that's very likely too.
3: Well, yeah, probably likely. Yeah. Um. And so even the message itself, I found myself like not even taking seriously, even though I was agreeing with it, which is like a bizarre experience to have in a film. Um, I don't know what you were thinking during that.
2: I mean, I I felt like it was very intentional. It's very intentional for us to see Tyler's full of shit on rewatch and like hopefully on an initial watch, but like that's hard in a movie, but like on revisiting it, like hopefully, you know, the filmmakers trying to show you somebody who is trying to be an armchair philosopher and is trying to yeah. like uh, do dorm room nihilism to appeal to the weakest of, of minds in order to like indoctrinate them, build a cult, build their own government. Like that's basically what Tyler is trying to do. And so um, I think it's the most clear in the bar conversation after the narrator yes. his home blows up. And he gets a beer with Tyler at a bar and Norton is explaining um, to Brad Pitt that he lost all of his material items that defined him. And Brad Pitt is like, do you know what a duvet is? Like, why do guys like us <laughs> know what that is? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, why is like hunter gatherers, do we know what a duvet is? And uh, so then like, what are we consumers? And Brad Pitt has like really good money ball energy in this scene. Oh, yeah. And Amazing. It's it's really iconic. And then Tyler gives us basically the logline of the film by saying the things you own end up owning you.
0: You know, man, it could be worse. A woman could cut off your penis while you're sleeping and
1: toss it out the window of a moving car. There's always that. I don't know. It's just when you buy furniture and you tell yourself, that's it. That's the last sofa I'm going to need. Whatever else happens... Got that sofa problem handled. I had it all. I had a stereo that was very decent. A wardrobe that was getting very respectable. I was close to being complete. Shit, man. Now it's all gone.
0: All gone. Mm. All gone. Do you know what a duvet is? Comfort. It's a blanket. Just a blanket. Why do guys like you and I know what a today is? Is this essential to our survival in the hunter-gatherer sense of the word? No. What are we then? Uh, consumers. Right. We are consumers. We are byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. Murder, crime, poverty, these things don't concern me. What concerns me are celebrity magazines, television, with. 500 channels, some guy's name on my underwear. Rogaine, Viagra, Olestra. Martha Stewart. Fuck Martha Stewart. Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down, man. So fuck off with your sofa units and string green stripe patterns. I say never be complete. I say stop being perfect. I say let, let's evolve. Let the chips fall where they may. That's me. I could be wrong. Maybe it's a terrible tragedy. Uh it's just just stuff. Tragedy. Well, you did lose a lot of versatile solutions for modern living. Fuck, you're right. No, smart.
1: Oh, my, my insurance is probably gonna cover it, so.
0: What? Things you own end up owning you. You
2: like? I, I think I think this movie does like a really good job of like what this scene is trying to capture, which is this this attack on materialism. I think this movie does a great job of highlighting uh, through Edward Norton's career wage labor in a, in a fantastic way and having to work yep. a nine to five that is ruining other people's lives. Like you're just trying to like pay your bills as you were putting it earlier. Like I'm just trying to operate within the system that was built for me before I got here. Exactly. And now I'm having to do it while also making other people's lives worse. And so Norton is like working in a cubicle as an insurance worker ventures, exploring this nine to five culture as like this evolution of social hierarchy. So I do think the movie as like a mainstream film is revolutionary in as far as just saying these ideas about the consequences of consumerism and materialism. Um, but then what we said earlier, again, the men are victimizing themselves throughout the movie, which on like one hand is a clear commentary on the hypocrisy of these men as like privileged fake pseudo nihilist who Fincher Mm -hmm. hates them. Fincher obviously hates them deeply the way he's like shooting them And he's kind of laughing at how dumb these guys are throughout the commentary of the movie too, uh, for anybody interested in in listening to that. Uh, But on the other hand, there is this confused message on men being emasculated. So then the commentary of consumerism, while accessible and interesting, and it has like well-meaning critiques on, on nihilism through it and like some takes on fascism too, and we'll get into those, it does complicate its own ideas with the victimization of men and how they've been victimized by consumerism and the traditional gender roles that they've lost, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I think this movie is so like infamous for speaking to so many, you know, detached men. But do you think if you had to think about movies that do consumerism well, like considering this is a massive budget mainstream film, uh, uh there are criticisms out there about like how this movie is digestible, but it doesn't go far enough. Do you think this is the most appealing part? A Fight Club, like I do, or do you find that there are other aspects of it that that speak to you more that are more interesting?
3: I mean, I guess for the time period it was made in 1999, yeah. The commentary on consumerism, I could see how that would be revolutionary uh, or just interesting to be spread out in terms of like mainstream America culture, yeah. Um, but right now, revisiting that, I don't find it as compelling because it's so maybe it's just part of our generation. It's so obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of how corrosive materialism and extreme consumerism is, um, and how it's, how it's just a distraction, um, sometimes. Um, but that being said, it, it, it takes an absolutist stance, I guess. Um, and it doesn't really offer any other solutions. And so that's why it kind of frustrates me. And I don't find it that compelling, um, of an idea uh, for America. I I don't know if one thematic idea really stands out other than I just found myself at the end of the of the film thinking about how cults and like fascism is created and I find that to be maybe more interesting and more relevant to our current political atmosphere.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great um, point. That was my second favorite part of this movie is the kind of paramilitary group that Tyler has, yeah. has manufactured and manifested from the beginning of the film. It feels like you watched a whole journey that took place over a week, but then you learn that you're dealing with an unreliable narrator and the movie has been going on for yep. a long time. And he's, oh, yeah. he's been building uh, groups <laughs> across the country without the internet. Okay. And there is something impressive seeing all those flights, those bills. It's amazing. Yeah. he. I think he said he took out an insurance claim or he got an acclaim for everything that burned down in his house, which I, I assume is why he blew up his home because he had insurance on everything in his home. And so he took all that money to then
3: build this network uh, of fight clubs,
2: I guess. Cause I was like, how is he paying for all these, these hotels and flights he, everywhere?
3: He blackmails his boss by like beating himself up That's in that true. office. Yeah. And the police conveniently come in right when he's like at his knees. Yeah. Please don't hit me again. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, I think um, I, I think everything I agree with everything you said about I feel like every time I say, yes, I like this element of the movie. There's always a but and I feel like fucking annoying for like saying but because yeah. like it's just it's like I would like to like <laughs> in an uncomplicated way, just like bits of this movie. But it is like a dangerously seductive film in the weirdest of ways because it is like it's. Because Fincher is like a, a sardonic, like skeptical realist, so he, he, the the, yeah. the criticisms he's making are so apt and like cynical in ways that are pretty universal. But the movie doesn't do anything to like look at how public institutions are being dismantled. And instead, it puts all the pressure on the individual, therefore the audience, and not really yes. even as a microcosm, just to put pressure on us. And it's really just like trying to make you think deeply about your role in consumerist culture, but then it tries to show how like consumer culture has shaped male identity and how men have ignored this for too long. And now look at us being run by a woman, which is the whole theme of rebel without a cause.
3: It's almost a movie that makes you feel more trapped after you watch it. It makes you feel more anxious. At least that's how I felt. Yeah. Um, And it makes, I could see how one would feel more caged in and, and almost inspired and and a little bit angry in Mm -hmm. some potentially problematic ways and i think the thing that it i don't know i don't know if it's satirizing this idea or not Mm -hmm. but it's one of the compelling ideas that tyler had about building this kind of army of sad men um (laughs) it's a funny way to put it i
2: should have been the log line an army of sad
3: men the army of sad men david fincher's fight club um is is he banded them together with this like pseudo existentialism instead of weaponizing death i guess you weaponize the fear of death and i guess the solution would have been instead of weaponizing death you ought to use it to love and like connect Uh um and i feel like that's where the movie kind of fell on its face or at least opened the door and then never closed it um
2: that's a good way to put it. I mean, when I'm saying undeveloped or underdeveloped, like that's basically what I mean is like, here's an idea. Isn't this true? Sort of. Yes. Okay, cool. I'm going to go away from that idea now and like never come back to it. And you're like, we let that door open for a while now. Oh, the movie's over.
3: It's kind of cold in here. Yeah. Like,
2: wait, what the fuck? Like, why did you do that? (laughs) You had a $70 million budget. This wasn't like a $4 million out, like independent film or an art house movie. Like, so yeah, yeah, I guess you have to hold it more responsible for those reasons. but. Okay, I want to talk about other moments with consumerism because uh, there are moments with an economic commentary commentary that are off-putting outside of just like Tyler's monologues that I'm still a little bit confused about, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. The big one being where Tyler Durden uh, as Brad Pitt is holding, or sorry, Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden is holding the convenience store clerk at gunpoint and he yes. threatens to kill the clerk if he doesn't return to vet school and mm-hmm. this is actually the moment in the novel that inspired fincher to try and pitch the film to fox which is fascinating to me because he didn't say why he liked this moment in the novel but based on what i know about fincher and, and i feel like i've you know i've listened to a lot of interviews i've i've read a lot of interviews like i've done the work what right. i assume is i think fincher found this moment to be pretty representative of the pressures that toxic men put on other stable men or, or men that are just like seemingly stable, a part of the crowd and treating choice as an individual act and completely ignoring kind of like systemic or structural dynamics or pressures to put that clerk in that place in the, in the first place. And it it, (laughs) kind of like, and I think, I think the message of that scene, hopefully, and this is like, again, it's not, it's, it could be easily misinterpreted and it probably has, it definitely has. I feel like the the idea is like Tyler believes if only men were allowed to once again forge their own path, men would be better off. And so Fight Club in this specific scene presents like this individual economic financial problem as a symptom of gender-based constraints based on what we've learned in the film and what Tyler has said. Mm-hmm. Instead of con- institutional constraints so even though that like that Forrest Gump you know shout out is funny because it implies that Norton's character who is like the psyche you know his psyche is the Brad Pitt character that implies that he likes Forrest Gump which means he doesn't watch good movies which is hilarious it's still (laughs) like a, a, a kind of awful scene because I don't think it's effective in its satire in that moment because it's told in such a literal way uh and I feel like yeah. it doesn't get to just claim it's being Dr. Strangelove about it. Like, I feel like if I am 18 again watching that movie and taking it seriously, I'm like, yeah, okay, that's cool. He's going to go become a vet. <laughs>
0: Stop, what are you doing? Come on. I can't find your back. Oh, God. Give me your wallet. Raymond K. Hessel, 1320 Southeast Banning, Apartment A. Small cramped basement apartment, Raymond. How did you know? Because they give shitty basement apartments letters instead of numbers. Raymond, you're going to die.
4: <laughs>
0: Is that your mom and dad? Mom and dad are going to have to call up kindly Dr. So-and-so. Pick up your dental records, want to know why? Because there's going to be nothing left to face.
4: Oh, come on. Oh, come An expired
0: on. community college student ID. What would you study, Raymond? Stuff. Stuff? Were the midterms hard?
3: <laughs>
0: I asked you what you studied.
3: Biology, mostly. Why? I don't know...
0: What did you want to be, Raymond K. Hessel? The question, Raymond, was what did you want to be? Answer him, Raymond! Jesus! Fenrir, Animals! Yeah, animals, so... The stuff, yeah, I got that. That means you have to get more schooling. Too much school. Would you rather be dead? No. Would you rather die, here, on your knees, in the back of a convenience store? I'm keeping your license. We're gonna check in on you. I know where you live. If you're not on your way to becoming a veterinarian in six weeks, you will be dead. Now run on home.
1: Run, force, run! I feel ill.
0: Imagine how he feels.
1: Come on, this isn't funny. That wasn't funny. What the fuck was the point of that?
0: Tomorrow will be the most beautiful day for Raymond Chaos's life. His breakfast will taste better than any meal you and I have
1: ever tasted. You had to give it to him. Come on. He had a plan, and it started to make sense in a Tyler
3: sort of way. No fear, no distractions. The ability
1: to let that which does not matter. Yeah,
3: that's. I'm so glad you brought this scene up because my first thought after he like said, "Oh, you were going to be a vet and so on." Um, now run! If I I'm gonna if you're not a vet in like a couple of weeks, I'm going to shoot you or something insane. Yeah, in um, like six weeks. And and my first thought is like, you don't know the rest of this guy's life. Yeah, how he, why he's working at a convenience store like maybe he needed to do this you don't you don't know have any freaking clue about as you said the systemic circumstantial contextualized existence of this entire person's choices right um which is just insane and you get immediately distracted because brad pitt is so hot and he's got like crazy swagger and just says you know I changed this man's life. Right. Yeah. You shouldn't you shouldn't be upset about this. And it and it's it's delivered so well yeah. for a millisecond I was taken off guard. Yeah. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, no. So I think like
2: if Fincher was here, uh, he would probably say, That means I made a good movie. Cause like that's I that's the way I hear directors who make off-putting transgressive mainstream films, the way they communicate when they actually do talk about the themes and they try not to, because then they don't want to give up all their secrets, but also they don't want to be held accountable for shit. But yeah, I feel like he would say that's kind of the point is like, I want you to make, make you feel the pressures of like Reagan era on a generate gen X, basically like the pressure of our parents and like what they made us feel like that your depression, your loss, Poverty, all that is a choice, and they want and he wants right. Tyler Durden to like represent all these like fallacies that we know not to be true, but he says it in such a convincing populist way, like how you're saying, and it doesn't hurt that's, that he's hot, and that's what makes yeah, it disturbing. That's,
3: that's the problem.
2: Yeah, but um, he's but, too hot. Okay, yeah. <laughs> they should have casted someone else, not Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. uh, But I feel like, uh, well, so then are we kind of saying like it does that, even though I'm saying like that scene is annoying to me because I don't think it's totally effective. Like it could have, it could have been, you know, it could have operated in a different way. I'm not going to say how because that's annoying for, you know, listeners or or me to do. But I feel like this satire could have been done better. It is weird to say that because like asking the question or like provoking the thought to me isn't like enough. Like I just, I want more out of these like big, budget provocative films. Um, but it's, it's, I feel like the way people oh, have run with this, this movie, I feel like it's a good, it's an example. The way our culture has responded to this film is like an indictment that the movie actually isn't that effective as it wants to be.
3: Yeah. And, and that's like the moment you, uh, brought up Wolf of wall street earlier as those like red oh, yeah. flag movies that what are movies that people like, but make you kind of second guess why they like them. Mm -hmm. Um and this is an you know a perfect example as a as a piece of evidence here to hold up to the light and be like, well, this is why Fight Club might be a little bit of a red flag film, is because I think that a lot of people might be taking away this fallacy of individual choice within Mm -hmm. a system that is so much more powerful than them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess in that way, the movie becomes like it's an artistic film that we're lucky to have and it, and it needs to be judged by what it's saying, not what it's not saying. But at the same time, you you still can't help but look at the crowds of people who love the film and think of like January six or like you, you, or it's hard not to, or exactly alt-right, uh, uh, white extremism or male rights activists to a lesser extent. But like, you can't help but think about those moments and like the ideology that those, that those men perpetuate, um, and and their realities that they're living in uh, you can't help but think of these scenes and wonder like if this could have been more fleshed out and if this could have been less of an inspirational text. But I do think Fincher is basically saying like, I didn't create this toxic culture. It existed beforehand. I'm just representing the anxieties, which again is one of the reasons why I think the social network is a special movie. So it's why I'm not shitting on fight. Club. Yes. Um, And then obviously, I think the final piece of this movie that is representing the anti-capitalist message of the film is literally the Fight Club itself. Like the lead characters are arguing that through the Fight Club, the men can find their agency again. And the Fight Club operates as like this unregulated market system And it's just like a bunch of random competitors who are, for the most part, like allowed to do whatever it takes to dominate and win to Brad Pitt, like punching someone in the balls like 12 times at one point. Like there are moments that. was
3: unbelievable when I saw that moment. Yeah. I was... I definitely did not understand that as a younger person. No, I had no idea what was happening. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Last night, I like leaned forward on my couch and I like looked at the screen. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, he's just... Punching his balls. Right. Over yeah, and he, over he, again. He
2: definitely was. Uh, and yeah, I think it's interesting to see the Fight Club as this metaphor that that Fincher really wanted to highlight on screen as this kind of like survival of the fittest free market uh uh element of the film that could be missed if you're just taking it as straight value, like wrestling or UFC kind of shit or like backyard brawling. Like there's more here, which I think is a fascinating way to read the fight club as this like kind of an interesting element of the book. Um, But I think the fight club as this commentary on the free market is probably like unintentionally scathing and how it also links violence and masculinity to competition. Like, I don't know how I feel like it is direct in the movie, but I don't know about the novel. Um, But I feel like patriarchy being linked to our economic system is something I'm never fully clear on in this movie. I'm not sure if it's fully clear on it uh, because the movie and the novel are criticizing consumer culture, but also we know as the audience that consumer culture exists because of sexist hierarchies and both the novel and the film, less the film, but more the novel really fail to realize that very essential point. And based off Fincher's career, I feel like he already knows this stuff already, but him and Brad Pitt and Edward Norton were like so self serving on this press tour for this film that they were really high really? on their own supply of like kind of being like fuck you to the man and like contrarian to the Hollywood system and the award system and just saying oh, giving man. a big middle finger to like the monetization of movies which is cool and definitely an of a moment kind of thing but now looking back at it just looks like very pretentious and. It, and you can't help but look at this fight club as a metaphor, but then kind of still be like, okay, but does this movie still understand that like that patriarchy and yeah, consumerism it, are linked?
3: Is it self-aware? I don't know. And and based off what you just said too about, you know, the press tour, uh, I guess, you know, the satire might not even exist. I don't know if they're leaning into it so heavily, or at least the satire and the way that I'm, trying to make it exist. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, That's a
2: good question. I mean, can we reclaim this movie as being a, uh, a, a, an artifact of the time and that is trying to do a few things that it was like, not necessarily ready for considering the time. Yeah. And I feel like this is a good probably point to transition into the, the masculinity conversation and like, sure whether or not something I do think this movie, this is the, this is the most complicated part of the film, which is the gender dynamics. But something I do think this movie does well is it views patriarchy and all these men in fight club and Tyler and the narrator running it as a symptom of being fearful of sexuality. Cause there's like a ton of queer coded essays on this movie. And there's a lot of kind of like gay undercurrents going on between the two characters. And also between all the men in the, in the movie, but I don't want to really talk about specifically any sexuality. I just want to think about it for me personally, as like the filmmakers arguing that this frustration of these men is because they've been like locked in cages of constructs. And so like them being fearful of sexuality and and becoming sexually repressed has also led for them to be here, not just consumer culture. And so I think this movie in its masculinity commentary can and should be, like, reclaimed as a piece of contrarian content that, like, tells us a lot about fragile, straight male psyches. Um, be, be, there's a lot there.
3: Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Because um, the movie opens with being at a testicular cancer mm-hmm. support group. Yeah. Um, You know, where these men's testicles are gone. Right. And... Yeah. <laughs> If the Project Mayhem should quote unquote fail, that something should create a flaw in the system, Tyler Durden would have his testicles removed. Right. Um, and so that's a consistent beat throughout the film for sure. This like anxiety around manhood and what it means to like have a penis, I guess, or testicles. Right. Um, it's like this strange insecurity that's floating around in the film um
2: well it's the hardest part of the movie even
3: to go ahead it's
2: a, it's, it's a difficult like part even, of the movie
3: to talk about like even uh like or i guess the movie doesn't open at the support group but it does open with the gun in norton's mouth which the first thing i wrote down is like this is pseudo phallic yes um, yeah so there's an obsession there
2: and, and I why, don't really I mean, know
3: how to talk about it. So
2: we, I want to save this for the lighthouse, but again, the lighthouse oh, commentary on okay. masculinity, like, I mean, that's in this movie, like this kind of oh, yeah. fear of the <laughs> it's, fear, it's the fear of the phallic, but also the, the, the weird, the, the kind of like questioning obsession, with it. obsession with it. Yeah. And you're kind of yeah. wondering what, what's going on here exactly. And, yeah, it's it's interesting because I don't think Fincher is all that interested in the queer reading of this movie. But I, I that's why I'm saying like on a deeper level, I think it's an interesting lens on the film just to have a baseline understanding that like so many heterosexual men are frustrated because they're sexually pressured to fit into a box. So I like that as a reading, even if it's a kind reading. I do. Right, yeah. I do think it's like a long-lasting reading, much much like the anti-capitalist, like evergreen comment. Because even though we view masculinity in our culture like much more on a spectrum today, and sexuality too, obviously, uh, and there's like a widely more uh, of a push for acceptance of getting away from binary identity expectations in our culture. Men Mm -hmm. who think in terms of Tyler being the masculine ideal ideal, like Brad Pitt being the masculine ideal still run the country. Like those men still operate at the top of power. And so like that really matters. Uh, And so that's why this commentary, I feel like still lasts because of what it's saying. And I feel like it should be kind of reclaimed and talked about more. There was a great, there's a countless number of letterboxed queer readings of this film, which I find found fascinating to read about. But again, I think Fincher is like going into this being like, these guys are just like, like tight in boxes at work and their home lives and like mm-hmm. in their sexuality too. And they're very frustrated and they're going to like act out in these ways. A lot like taxi driver, a lot of Scorsese movies feel like that. Um, like the departed comes to mind.
3: Well, as so I, as I was just reflecting on about this queer reading, like even Bob, the character Robert Paulson, in yes. the movie, who has "quote unquote" the bitch tits. I guess mm-hmm. I hate saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the guy who dies,
2: <laughs> right?
3: He gets his head blown off. I actually um and not, yeah, I didn't put that together. Yeah, wow. He is the most emotional and the most "quote unquote" feminine. Um, Mm -hmm. and he acts as the comedic plot device throughout the film. Um,
2: yeah. And so again, that's, you know,
3: surface levels, problematic read.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Is there something underpinning the theme there? I don't think so, but I think like if you really tried hard, you could probably find one and looking at him as like the biggest victim because obviously Fincher gives meatloaf, like the actor, like he gives him the most empathy of all the characters like you he like you really sympathize with like what he's going through and like you're kind of like he's the one who's the most emotionally aware i think he's the only Mm. character who ever cries in the film of course there's like the the surface level like commentary about why he's doing that and i think that yeah again i think what we're saying over and over again at this point is just kind of like here is all these like problematic surface readings of this movie. Here's like the meta text of the satire. And then here's maybe the complicated parts that were never fully developed and the doors weren't closed all the way. And yeah. that, that could be another one. Um, but I, I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, as an, as an English teacher. Okay. Somebody's taught a ton of different classes uh, in that subject. I, I don't know if this movie actually Classifies truly like as a satire because it's like sole satirical element is the duality of the male ego, which is like the narrator and Tyler having like this split personality, basically acting as like the exaggerated, absurdist bit of the film. But everything else in the movie to me is like really grounded, though weird. Like fight clubs happen all the time. They happen across schools and they've happened across Mm -hmm. generations. It's like a really unfortunate like TikTok trend right now of kids fighting. And that's been going on in my school like every other day, but also for adults like backyard brawls happen all the time. And like we have like highlight reels for those things all over social media. And so the fight club isn't crazy to me. And then when we get to, like, um, you know, and in, in fighting being more fetishized in, like, entertainment, it's a big deal in gambling. It's a big deal in streaming, mm-hmm. more than it's ever been in my life. And then after this movie, we immediately get Columbine in real life. And throughout the 2000s, oh, we have, like, white male rights activists and alt-right adjacent people going on terrorist shooting right. sprees and, obviously, the recent attack on the Capitol that I already mentioned. These, all, all these events led by extremists who are trying to, uh, Get back what they see in their minds; they deserve based on their textbooks yes. that they are reading. And so, like that, to me, is all happening in real life. So they, those things don't necessarily add up to satire to me. They just they they just make me think of like an elevated premise, if that makes sense. So when people say Fight Club is a satire on consumerist culture, I don't really. Think about it in that way. I feel like it's only satirical and its commentary on masculinity because of the Tyler narrator duality bit, where the twist at the end happens. Maybe it's too complicated of like a question, but like, do you do you think that the movie is really a satire if it's only kind of like exaggerated in like one bit of the movie, um, or or can it just be like a a thriller? that has like exaggerated elements or does that even matter? Cause sometimes I think the way this movie is interpreted is in like a more intellectual meta way often. And people analyze it deeply because we ta- attach that word of satire to it. So then there's like this added layer of conversation, but does it even deserve that?
3: I think I, I think I want it to be a satire.
2: Okay.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: And that's the problem. um, and I mean, the more we talk and how, you know, there's these problematic readings of it going on and there's doors that are open but not closed. I mean, I can't tell if if David Fincher is making fun of us and me. <laughs> um
2: He for sure hates us. Yeah.
3: Oh yeah. Pointing his finger at us and saying and and making it problematic for the intention of us questioning the problematic. Maybe not. Um, yeah. There's satirical elements, like it's a hyperbolic movie. Insane things happen. Absurdist yeah. things happen. It's uh, objectively comedic at times. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of is a Trojan horse. It's like using all of these elements and saying like, hey, I'm kind of a satire, but... um. I don't know. I I don't know if I can answer it. Yes or no. I think it's it's murky. I think there's an in-between. It's like a it's a social commentary.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, it's a flawed social commentary with satirical elements.
2: Uh, yeah.
3: You know, that's like the most political answer ever.
2: <laughs> no, no. I, I kind of <laughs> wanted that because I feel like we give the movie a little bit more leverage or room to work within the confines of a satire we go okay like i can forgive some things that are being misinterpreted because you're a satire
3: oh i see and so like
2: if it's no longer a satire then get your shit together fight club like it's a different movie completely because then you're like you need to be more clear about the ideas that you're presenting because they become confusing to mass audiences but if you're a satire then there's a little bit more leeway you give to a film intellectually and emotionally i think at least that's right i mean tar
3: we saw Tar. Tar is a g- good example. Yeah, well, that's a good example. So is Wolf of Wall Street. Um, yeah, it's I think I think it's a little more obviously a satire. Um yeah. than Tar is. Tar is super nuanced and weird. If you guys haven't seen that movie, oh my god!
2: Yeah, <laughs> listeners, check Tar out. But
3: I nobody called
2: that a satire. But me and Kelsey on our podcast for I know all three of us all okay. together, but we said yeah. that it reminded us of Fight Club, where it has satirical elements running throughout and kind of joking mm-hmm. on like how elitist people are going to try to claim this movie and say, like, sometimes genius is bad.
3: See, that's what I can't tell. It's like, you know, are is the movie asking that of itself? Who's going to claim this movie? Mm-hmm. And depending on who claims it, we're going to laugh at them. But that seems obviously really um, immature to some degree and, and also irresponsible. Um,
2: yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk <laughs> about... It, the, yeah. I mean, unless you have any last thoughts about the satire, no. we, can come, we can come back to it because it feels like it'd just be like a never ending cycle of us just being like, it doesn't do things well enough. So like, I don't know whether to call it that or not, but uh, so, I guess, yeah, go ahead.
3: Uh, just one, maybe for satire. This is one line from Bob. Okay. He's talking about Tyler Durden. Okay. <laughs> he was born in a, he was born in a mental institution. He sleeps one hour. He's a great man. That's it. (laughs) Period. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
2: I feel like there's a ton of those moments in this movie. And like. Yeah. But also like check a Reddit message board. Like that's how people talk. Like that's how people talk about Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro. So like I don't. Like that's. Oh
4: God. All daily
2: wire listeners, like check a comment section. Ever heard of Prager U? Like do a YouTube. Like that that is how people communicate with one another online and those spaces if anyone's interested. If anyone's not interested in like looking at those spaces, the only reason we have is because we're educators, so we need to know what kids are consuming in order to like teach them appropriately and like from all angles. But like if no one knows those spaces, there's a ton of like vox and like vice deep dives into alt-right spaces that present themselves as being rational or logical. And so unfortunately, like those spaces weren't around when fight club existed or they were very small on, on the blog sphere. But like if Fight club came out in 2023, this movie would be claimed by neoliberals slash like alt-right figures. And so that's what makes it a complicated film in a lot of ways. Mm, I I can't really like Joker is a movie that I thought was good. And we haven't yes. talked about it on the podcast. And I have to rewatch it. I only saw it in 2018 when it came out. I believe it was 2018. Um, but like progressives ran with that film as calling it like very controversial, if not problematic, if not just completely derivative of of King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. Mm, yep. Which whatever. I don't want to have that conversation. I guess we'll have it next year when Joker Two comes out. I uh, can't wait. Lady Gaga's in it. I'm excited for it. Um, but the movie is, like, very divisive. Um, but Fight Club, to me, is way more divisive than than Joker. Joker is, like, a, a comic book film with a very straightforward message about mental health. It's, like,
3: mm-hmm. not
2: really complicated. And, like, that's Joker. Like, that's a bad... Pr- that's not somebody that, like, we're wondering <laughs> if some if it's somebody we forgive or somebody that we're platforming. Like, this is a terrorist. We all grew up with this character on our screens. We've seen the Christopher Nolan movies. Like this is an extremist. Like nobody is sympathizing with this figure. Even if they're doing it on like Reddit boards, they're not taking it seriously. Like Tyler Durden, who's Brad Pitt. So it's like, so I feel like that's my only movie I can think of that is fight club adjacent. But that's why I'm wondering, like, it's funny to think about all the people who love fight club that are probably more politically and socially aligned with us. That would probably hate it if it came out, if it came out today in 2023, I think, um, Okay, but in terms of uh masculinity bits that are like that are interesting that mainly work through the narrator and Tyler, I want to stick to some things that worked first. I really grew throughout the beginning of the film to like, especially on watching it a second time this week, I really liked the subliminal images of Brad Pitt flickering throughout the beginning of the movie, like images of Tyler being inserted into the frame of the film. I know it takes you yeah. out of the movie a little bit probably because like the satire sort of reveals itself because he's having like this meta experience as the narrator is. But I think it was smart considering what the, the narrator does by like breaking the fourth wall, which is the most satirical thing it does and telling us about like Tyler, which is that he inserts images of pornography into family films at the theater. Mm-hmm. And so Fincher gets to kind of like have this meta flex of inserting his own images of Brad Pitt into the movie yes. that you're watching that is supposed to be something that it's not. So I thought that was... Pretentious but cool. And I think uh considering how much the movie understands how full of shit Brad's Tyler is, um, when he's commenting on how like men are indoctrinated by the branding of like the masculine ideal throughout the film, it's hilarious. It has this like layer of comedy because like Brad Pitt's whole identity has been shaped by Hollywood as like a masculine ideal. So it's funny that the movie yes. is like presenting him in this way uh because of our 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 just our meta relationship with the actor himself which i thought was Yeah, great. i thought that was
3: clever. Oh, 100%. I was thinking about that the whole time. I was like, of course Brad Pitt is this guy.
2: Yeah. I, um, I don't even know if we have somebody today that would be an equivalent to that. I guess Ryan Gosling sort of just did that with Gosling, Barbie. yeah. I guess Ken is like that kind of character.
3: Ken, Ken would love Fight Club.
2: Big fight club guy so i just i heard i don't know if this is true i saw it on twitter but it's hard to know what's true but like greta gerwig uses i think it's the godfather in barbie right is that the movie that the kens are watching that they're making fun of that yes she's yes she's making fun yes, of yes, yes, the coppola's yeah. stuff and i thought mm-hmm. that was really smart but she said she wanted to use um and had a bit of ridley scott in the film but she wanted to use blade runner originally but then got the, got the green light on godfather and i was so fucking glad <laughs> I'm so glad she didn't use Blade Runner because there are only a few films where I'm like, I don't care who loves this movie, I love it, and like Blade Runner is like one of them. Um, but, yeah. anyways, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I I don't know, you know, how consistent, like we've been saying, the movie is of the masculinity commentary, but the idea that masculinity is being sold back to men by corporations through IKEA furniture or through dresswear or through haircuts. Is kind of like used as a punchline, which I thought was really funny and smart and interesting because like everything men have been shown or told in their lives is that their, their identity is the one that controls power, but now they're being forced by corporations to consume like fast food versions of yes. patriarchy through goods or materials. And they're like being pressured to to try and mirror the ideal of like a model man, like a Brad Pitt figure. Mm -hmm. So it's funny when he's like pointing out models on the train or saying, yeah, like the Calvin Klein underwear models. Yes. With male, like men's names on them. And so I like this idea of like patriarchy being sold as like a McDonald's happy meal in a sort to, to like the, the, like the isolated detached average man, every man And then in order for like corporate control, men are also being indoctrinated to believe that it actually is not like corporations doing this to you. We're only doing this to you because you're sharing the wealth now with women. And like, that's kind of like this underlying problem. They never say it explicitly, but it feels like the underlying message. I guess like Brad Pitt's character, Tyler does say it enough that we don't need another woman in our lives. Like when he's in the bathtub next to Edward Norton and they're talking about how they don't need another woman in their lives. I guess that, that you can interpret that in a lot of different ways.
0: If you could fight anyone, who would you fight? Fight my boss, probably. Really?
1: Yeah, why? Who would you fight? Fight my dad. I don't know my dad. I mean, I know him, but he left when I was like six years old, married this other woman, had some other kids. He like did this every six years. He goes to a new city and starts a new family. Fuck you're setting up franchises.
0: My dad never went to college So it's real important that I go That sounds familiar So I graduate, I call him up long distance I said, Dad, now what? He says, get a job Same here Now I'm 25, make my yearly call again I say, Dad, now what? He says, I don't know, get married mean,
1: you can't get married I'm a
0: 30-year-old boy we're a generation of men raised by women. I'm wondering if another woman is really the answer we need.
3: Well, it's just the the movie itself is absent, generally, of women, and even like talking about women in healthy ways. Like even yeah. when they're in the bathtub, right? Um, there the conversation is focused on the father. Oh, where? Who's your father? What was he like? And so on. Yeah. Obviously, they're the same person. So this, you know both fathers left both fathers you know didn't go to college or so on right um and so they're both having this like masculine grudge against their father um but it i i could be wrong but at no point were they like oh so what's your mom like and so on
2: yeah no i mean it's a good point i mean again one of the movies that inspired this film is rebel without a cause which james dean throughout that movie just wants like his dad to stop cooking food and like punch his mom basically which is crazy like it's
3: a wild never seen the movie but that's insane
2: i mean it's a great coming of age story in terms of like how it creates a lot of archetypes and like uh, narratives that we grow to be accustomed to in the in the 20th Mm -hmm. 21st century but like it also is commenting on the generational angst but their generational angst in the 1950s was like my dad is now like is is reverting or is now progressing to like a more egalitarian household. And I miss when he had like a traditional power dynamic. So that means I could own my own life and like have a power dynamic that gives me agency in my own life as like a, as like a man child. And so it's a weird movie, but like similarly to <laughs> fight club, it's speaking to that same angst. Um, ultimately, I just think the film through Tyler and half developed ideas of Marla speak to the suffering of men as a symptom of modernity rather than a symptom yes. of capitalism. And I think that right. is like the, that is the spicy kind of like gross doesn't sit well aspect of like the masculinity commentary that feels so revolutionary. But at the same time, it's like saying that all these men are detached because of labor exploitation or because yeah, of that makes
3: sense. Yeah. But um, it feels
2: like it's about like, the times are changing, and that's why you hate your lives
3: yeah it's it's like a um it's almost turns the capitalist kind of criticism about how we brand identity and how that makes us empty and and insecure and purposeless. that becomes a red herring almost um yeah. because we're so indoctrinated fittingly with Tyler Durden Brad Pitt and his you know waxing philosophical um ideas about how men are c- eroding because of women and it's a generation of men raised by women and you have to reclaim your manliness. And it's not because of what you've said. It's not because of capitalism, right? Even though that's how the movie ends. That's what and we're going to say.
2: Really... Looking at each other in public, it's because yeah. of yeah. advertising fuck advertising my right, but also woman <laughs> as like the <laughs> undercurrent of all of that. <laughs> oh uh, you know, I found an interesting quote from Fincher in a, in a okay. uh, film comment magazine. So um, he was interviewed in 1999 and he was asked about Tyler and like maybe what he was supposed to represent on a metal level and he didn't really want to give too much away. So he said he, he was going to be short and all of he said was, uh, men are designed to be hunters and we're in a society of shopping and there's nothing to kill anymore. There's nothing to fight and there's nothing to overcome, nothing to explore. And in that kind of like societal emasculation, this everyman, the Tyler narrator mold is created. And so when he says shit like that in 1999, you can't help, but think he believes a bit of the bullshit of like the fascistic, like Brad Pitt, Tyler character. And you can't help, but hear like Tom Cruise in Magnolia. You know what I mean? Like you can't help, but hear someone like that.
3: Listen, he sleeps one hour. He's a great man.
2: I mean, that's what it feels like. I mean, it's like someone making fun of an oppressor but then being like, I um, have a point.
3: That's wild. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny you brought up Magnolia. Um, definitely similar uh, charismatic uh, yeah. exploitation and like capitalization of, of masculine kind of angst um, and loneliness.
2: Well, there's a movie that someone did right. PTA, The Master, incredible film about cults and masculinity that
3: film is a wild ride but yeah it does not hold anybody up on a pedestal at all
2: no it also doesn't feel that judgmental either uh yeah. I mean pta is one of he's maybe the best american film makes you
3: sad at the end of the day yeah but yeah, yeah. wow Great movie. call out. Yeah. Maybe you all can come on for
2: a master episode on PTA releases his next movie, which apparently is a, a satire on the Republican Party. So,
3: oh, my God, PTA yes. is saying,
2: fuck it. I don't care anymore.
3: <laughs> That'd be a great pairing. The master and the lighthouse. Oh, my God.
2: That's what I'm saying. these movies about like men cut from the same cloth but and are and have the same philosophies but are operating in different ways, one more chaotic, one more like in structured organized ways is the scariest part of those movies is that you just can't tell you know you just can't you can't tell yeah sometimes you you can't see the uh the the fascist in work if he's acting as a populist um anyway, so I think when Fincher says like that quote in ninety nine you just can't help but like think that okay, he read the novel- the the novel a little bit too you know close to the heart like literally and and I think Hold the movie it. becomes a little bit less provocative if you take those quotes seriously and just more stupid, you know not maybe not the best word, but it does feel, <laughs> feel kind of dumb, and I think based on Fincher's filmography, obviously it's like I don't think he actually today sounds anything like he did during the fight club press because most of his films right. since 99 are very much like anti sad men. Like I've said, like there's no sympathy for the redemption of like man as an idea. He really like hates like the idea of masculinity through all of his movies and doesn't let men feel sorry for themselves. He just like makes the audience laugh at them. And he, I feel like maybe it, it, When I say that, I feel like sometimes that can be misinterpreted as like feminist, but it like doesn't mean he's feminist at all. It just means philosophically uh, he might not, you know, he might just believe that men get too many excuses. And he seems like a big, you know, like workaholic kind of person where he's like, we just get too many excuses as a culture and specifically sad, tragic men. I
3: I could see that.
2: That seems like more where he's coming from when it comes to his commentary on masculinity, which is why I think he gets a little bit too much like leeway as somebody who people view as like a progressive artist sometimes. Um, so I think the the most unfortunate element of this movie is it's unfortunately like its masculinity commentary because it's just not that consistent. And like James put earlier, too many doors are left open. I think its thoughts on gender completely contradict its entire message about consumerism. Because, like you said, the literal fight club it has an economic metaphor we talked about earlier, but it also has a gender metaphor of exposing like the violence of men as a symptom of corporatism's monetization of patriarchy. And that is like very insightful and it's very interesting, but then the movie like swerves. Solid thesis. That's a great thesis. But then it like says, okay, just kidding. Just hang on. I'm not done. And then it says uh, (laughs) that, have you heard of project mayhem? Because now I'm going to show you how, detached these men became because of consumer culture, uh, but also because their masculinity has been like warped or like their balls have been cut off literally or metaphorically. Yeah. Uh, and so I feel like the movie sort of like threatens gender power dynamics in a lot of ways. And it tries to like propagate a sense of, of, of victimhood at times by accident. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think that theme gets messy and it, it gives Tyler more power than necessary as a character that kind of lives on in people's minds, which brings us to the fascism reading of this movie to like maybe fascism being conflated with anarchy or the kind of like nihilistic elements of this film that are more like militaristic or radical. Um, I, I'm not sure about this part of the movie. I think it's my second favorite bit of the movie about how Tyler ends up like creating a fight club and like how he ends up like, radicalizing men who are susceptible to that kind of extremism. But there's also like elements of it, like with the gender stuff where there are so many men still glorifying Tyler, where it's kind of confusing now. Like, are they going to run with this and like want to create their own (laughs) like organization of,
3: of fragile men? I don't know. And again, the message is kind of underscored about the fascism and the, and the paramilitary kind of organization it's become is underscored by this detail that again throws me, and I assume throws other audience members mm-hmm. off a little bit. Is that they're not killing anybody. They're yeah,
2: these. It's it's a smart writing choice. Yeah,
3: jester esque um, kind yeah. of like agents of chaos that are just trying to start anew, and that archetype is problematic and used i think as a disguise or at least isn't fully cooked at the end of this film yeah. in terms of commentary on 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 fascism well
2: i do i think, don't know what you think no i agree i it's weird because on one hand um the movie really exposes men as like an easy tar- to target group uh men who are stuck in nine to five like just beneath middle class um who feel kind of like um both guilty for not being the powerful man that the textbooks told them they were supposed to be, that was supposed to like abuse the yeah. power on other people and also feel like a little bit like they're lesser than because they're not matching this like status quo of what their identity is supposed to live up to. Um, and so I think the movie does a good job of making sure that you know that the, all of these men that you never really l- learn a backstory about, like Jared Leto's character, for example, like you just you just see them and assume that they were willing to let fascists give them rules to life, like enter a Mm reeducation camp for men. And when you see the fight club, make men sit outside for a few days in order to join the Fight club. um, It's just kind of like a small example of what we already see, what men are willing to do to give their lives to Jordan Peterson. Like what, what, like men willing to like rework their whole lives in order just to have someone yell at them to tell them to clean their room.
3: Give me a purpose, give me order, give me structure. Right. I feel emasculated and I feel lost.
2: Yeah. It's like stunted millions of men. I mean, it's like, it's not like us just kind of talking about this off the cuff. Like we have the data for it. Like how many men are paying like armchair philosopher, masculine ideal looking men to tell them how to change their lives and become better or whatever that means to them. And so you know, somebody we haven't brought up at all, but like obvious obvious populist figures like a Donald Trump, who like actually yep. became the president through using this kind of like rhetoric, uh, or to a lesser extent, but still valid, like the men who want to be validated in their irrationality or, or skepticism will turn to quote unquote free thinkers like a Joe Rogan figure and like listen to four-hour podcast about potential experts, maybe not experts on a specific issue, just to feel like they're having some kind of intellectual experience because they feel so lost. And so I feel like there's a lot of Tyler that predicts those people in a way, which I want to give the movie credit for, because I feel like, you know, just like Tom Cruise's character in Magnolia, you have these kind of figures in films that are preparing audiences for what's going to happen with the internet, which is going to give more of a voice to these people who are trying to get you know, public officials and trying to pressure audiences into disinvesting in education, like deplatforming yes. experts in academia mm-hmm. and just like regular individuals trying to acquire enough power to control the rules or laws in their lives. And we've seen this like operate at a state level. We've seen specific governors of states in our countries right now, uh the big one down south that are trying to like decentralize oh, yeah democratic institutions in order to control thought and Tyler Durden as like an idea. And then the fight club as an idea are obviously like fantastic prophetic metaphors for how fascism or populism to fascism operates. Even if, even if maybe Tyler isn't all the way fleshed out or developed because of the gender commentary, I still think that is really, that aspect of this is really well done.
3: Yeah. I think that's powerful. Um Really well said. And when I was thinking about the paramilistic, paramilitalistic
4: yeah. <laughs> organization that yeah, it's yeah.
3: become um, and how it becomes this uh, fascist kind of terrorist organization, everything you just said, especially about, you know, validating fear, you know, how can right. you give the hopeless hope or at least um, artificially create hopelessness in somebody who's already susceptible to feeling like they're worthless? Right. Um. And so you validate their fears and you create distrust in what hasn't previously worked and offer them an out, offer them a way to make it work. Yeah. Um.
2: Yeah. David Fincher on the commentary, actually, during the um one of the conversations from Tyler, uh, one of his speeches, Fincher talks about Tyler's speeches as Nuremberg rallies, like he compares Tyler to like a Nazi again, which is you know, where we are today when we talk about alt-right groups. And so like, it's interesting for him to view him as like an ethnocentrist figure. Uh, But then again, have the gender mishaps, which are like confuse the movie. But yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to me that people just like, don't like connect, like people who are running with Fight Club as this anti-establishment text, like do not connect the term snowflake being used in a... Uh, in this film, in like an ironic yes. way, to like how it's being used in an, a literal way by Ben Shapiro, for example.
3: Yeah, that was that was w- when I think they're like gardening in the back, and he's like, "None of you are special. None of you are a right. special snowflake or something." Right. And I was like, you know that <laughs> it's become a meme um, from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio's like whistling and pointing at the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he sees himself he's like oh, oh, oh. you did that yeah <laughs> i kind of felt like that in my head when i heard that term i was like oh my god this has been co-opted so egregiously
2: yeah the term originates from this film which is wild or i guess from the novel um but yeah i think you can tell that david fincher had you know his finger on the pulse of like what fascism looks like in everyday oh, yeah. life by calling this a nuremberg rally or like That Tyler Manifesto, the Manifesto speech that is so like sick, like insane sick, like not in a good way. And you hear him talk about how he is telling all the men at the Fight Club, you're all the smartest men who've ever lived. Advertising has made us chase cars and clothes, but we're the middle children of history. Like our great war is a spiritual war and our Great Depression is our lives. And we've been told we would be millionaires and we, uh, are now like very, very pissed off because these things did not come true. And I thought that was like such a well-delivered speech because you can, yes. write, you can write, you know, fascistic speeches all day long. Like it's not super difficult. Mm-hmm. Like just read a monologue from any fascist you want to pick over the past century. Uh, but <laughs> the way that Brad Pitt delivers it, like he really tries to race through the problematic parts and then really takes his time on the more universal parts. So like when he says like advertising has made us chase cars and clothes, but then he says things like, uh, our great war is a spiritual war. Like he says the, he says the more difficult things to swallow. And like you, for, so you don't think about it too long. Very wow, quickly. That's a that's
3: relative. A close watch. I didn't notice that.
2: Well, it's interesting because like when he says we've been told we'd be millionaires, I was like, all right, yeah. clack Yeah. <laughs> Class inequality. All right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then he's like, now we're very pissed off. I'm like, wait, okay, hold on, calm down. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that kind of like that those rhetorical cho- choices and like that dog whistling to detach groups is just really well performed by look Pitt.
0: And look around. I see a lot of new faces. <laughs> Shut up. Which means a lot of you've been breaking the first two rules of Fight Club. I see in Fight Club the strongest and smartest men who've ever lived. I see all this potential, and I see a squander. God damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. The middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't slowly learning that fact
2: i think it's just like a very well written scene to illustrate how radicalism happens and that idea of uh the militarism that you're talking about like how that happens and and how men will place the blame uh for our for their frustrations on society um rather than themselves is like exactly the type of attitude of how we understand incel culture today or cult culture so yes I think later in the movie when we get this group smashing up cars or destroying a Starbucks and they become like this glorified terrorist group without necessarily realizing it, the film is like doing this anti-consumerist thing while also making this message about like this is also where nihilism can lead you to populism, to fascism. And this is how these things are unhealthy. And I thought that I thought those two themes like the anti-consumerism and the things that you've already touched on with like how populism operates and turns into things like the paramilitarism like that all really works like those two themes fit together is really effective because it was saying just because you understand how you're exploited doesn't mean you can act out in these ways there are practical solutions this movie doesn't need to tell you what those are or figure it out but like that is all really great even if the gender commentary just fucks up the movie a lot
3: yeah i agree with you um and i think it's it's I think it's probably the most compelling part for me because it's the most relevant and it just makes me reflect on our current uh you know, political social atmosphere in America mm-hmm. that uh, that I s that we see so obviously, especially working in public schools. Yeah. Um, and yeah. how also made me reflect on just like the almost impish, childish nature of like the roots of fascism. Um, how immature and gross yeah. it is. Yeah. And that there is no deeper philosophical purpose than to just create chaos and centralize concentrated power to create chaos. Yeah. Um it's like this boring, it's the most boring childish evil that is spread by men who like negate institutions. Mm-hmm. And it's just they they show that really well. At least I mean Fincher does.
2: It's also really smart like low key how going off what you're talking about how like self-aware men who are highly critical of establishment that exploits them to then create their own mini establishment and like the fact that Fight Club has rules that they like take really seriously but are just laws and like if you break it you're no longer in the group or in this state that is being created across the country is just you know it's good in a novel it's much better in the film. And I think the consumerist and fascist commentary are the bits that are going to, they're going to live on in this movie. And it's why I'll rewatch it. And then I'll just always feel like shit after because of the gender stuff. But like, that's, that's the, the reality of this movie. Um, yeah, we've done, I feel like we've done a good job of like unpacking. It's a, it's a complicated movie to talk about. I got really like, just let listeners know I got stressed last night. Cause I was like looking at this movie again. I try, I wasn't going to rewatch it a second time. And then I did. And then I was like, this is like, such a convoluted it's, film that like, I feel yeah, like, like it's, it's not one of my favorite movies. It's not in my top five Fincher. If it is, it's like number five and I'm only, I only really want to talk about it. Cause I think it would be fun to do it with you. And also it's funny because we're, we we have not really said yet which one of us are, is Tyler Durden, but like, it's, it's just, it'll be a funny idea, <laughs> but I think it's, it's like people love this movie. And also it's the most watched Fincher movie of all time. So
3: Yeah, it's it's funny you said that because at the end of the notes when the movie was finished, I was typing on my computer. I'm like, do we all have a Brad Pitt? Um, Yeah,
2: yes. There's a there's a Brad Pitt flickering in our eyes every time. Every time something doesn't go our way, straight white male syndrome.
3: (laughs) I know, and well, that's. I mean, I'm glad we talked about it because you know I haven't seen this movie in twelve or thirteen years, and it's I know that. It's like a pillar of at least I perceive it anecdotally to be a pillar of masculinity for a lot of people. Yeah. Um and, and a lot of men that I know. And so I appreciate like getting to talk about it because it's it is convoluted and it's sloppy, I think. Yeah. Um and yeah, I I don't know. Is it a satire? Not sure. Is it clever? Sometimes.
2: Yeah. Sometimes it's like having a smart contrarian student in class. I'm like, okay, what are you doing here? What are you trying to prove? <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, I mean, like, that's who,
3: that's who Tyler Durden reminds me of.
2: Yeah. I mean, that is what the movie really gets really well. And Brad Pitt gets it too. And like, even in his like award press, like he was doing a lot of Tyler Durdenisms, like where he was just like acting mm-hmm. extra and like hyper mask. And you could tell he was just doing a bit in order to get through the awards. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is one of the most important American cultural artifacts when it comes to the past like three decades of masculinity in art. And like trying to explore different ways that the cycle of toxic masculinity, that's a phrase that's been overused, but that how it operates in very sometimes like quiet ways through characters like Edward Norton, who have like a hidden fascist in them, who today would just be running a Twitch stream. Or a Reddit
3: American chain. History X. Yeah. If you haven't seen it.
2: Edward Norton, uh, one of the most prolific actors of the late 90s, early, early 2000s, like doing the craziest of movies. Have you ever seen Rounders? The Matt Damon poker no, film? No. Great. N- no, I haven't Have seen it. Have you that. seen Primal Fear?
3: Nope. Not okay. that one. Either. I'm
2: not going to say anything about those two. We got to save those for another, another yeah, pod one don't day. Work. Uh Let's get to the extra credits of okay. Fight Club. I'll go first just to give you a second to get your bearings and be able to Let us know what you think deserves more credit because we've done a lot of work kind of like kind of unpacking what doesn't work about this movie. So let's say a little bit of things that we that we loved or want to give more recognition to. So I want to recognize and give extra credit to the casting of Edward Norton and Brad Pitt because I think Norton, who we really haven't talked about at all, reminds me of every single sad late 20s, early 30s something man who does feel like deeply exploited by his work, but does not have the language to express that. And even, even if he did like mental health issues are still very taboo for men today. And, and definitely then in 1999. And so he plays that man like Edward Norton does very well, if not perfectly. Yes. And I think there was some criticisms at the time that like Edward Norton is not the every man. He's just like a disgruntled employee, but I look at him and I go like, I see that guy on the streets and like, I see those bags under his eyes everywhere. Like in, when I, when I meet eyes with like a straight, sad white man, like you can <laughs> see that face. And so that's everywhere. And so I, uh, I think that was a great casting. I think it's an incredible, incredible performance. And I think the technical achievement of this movie and all the, the wild editing and the scores and the camera movements following all the care, the, the characters, chaotic movements, it's all fantastic. Um, so I think the performances get overlooked and then obviously Brad Pitt it's not in my top three pit performances, even though I think it's a very good performance. I'm a big money ball guy. I love the oceans movies, especially oceans 12 like buzz cut, Brad Pitt insane. Uh, But he is like (laughs) very, very convincing as a real life Tyler, like a Tyler that I can imagine meeting. And I think, you know, toward the end of the film, when we get the, the second version of Tyler, the, the buzz cut, alter ego version of tyler that is now aware that the narrator norton knows that he is tyler i think Pitt plays that so confidently and so i feel like we don't give him credit for like playing three basically three roles in this movie it is amazing because at the beginning of the film he has to play this like unassuming bro frat guy who re- who read like one year of freshman dorm room philosophy. And then by the time <laughs> he's like running the fight club, 45 minutes later, you have to believe that he has complete control over the extremes of emotions of that room where he's sort of like stoic, but also like preachy, but then also commanding. And so he's doing so much. And then when the owner of the bar comes to beat the shit out of him in the basement, that oh, one ew. night, Pitt is playing that scene. Like he is the joker. Like he is senselessly laughing while being pummeled in the face. And that is not a Brad Pitt performance. You, you usually come by like that is a very absurd performance. So he does do 12 monkeys. He does do movies that are kind of crazy, but like this one specifically really jumps out to me is something that I guess I just like put in the back of my mind and forgot about, but this is one of his most impressive performances. So these two guys, Norton and Pitt as the kind of like every man with the masculine ideal, I think we're just great castings and it's laugh out loud, funny on rewatch and moments to see Norton like arguing or hanging out with him, his like hyper stylized masculine version of himself at like bars where, you know, on rewatch that you're watching Norton talk to nobody and like within the reality of the film is tragic, you know, but it is hilarious. And so I think, the The casting doesn't get enough love because it seems easy to people to like look back on it now, but it's fantastic.
3: Wow, that's great. Um, I guess casting adjacent. Um, my extra credit. So after Tyler Durden, Brad Pitts, Tyler Durden gets the living hell beat out of him by that bar owner, mm-hmm. he tells the guys, "You got a homework assignment. You got to go lose a fight, start a fight, and oh lose a fight.
2: yeah, yeah." <laughs> the, well, i'm thinking of the preacher
3: yeah
4: Ugh,
3: it's funny that's my extra credit the preacher oh, okay sorry yeah so <laughs> um one of the members has is like working at an auto mechanic uh shop and he's like spraying a hose around a preacher walks by sprays him with a hose tries to start a fight <laughs> and compared to all of the other examples of the people that we've run into so far he's the only guy who fights back preacher does yeah and he starts pushing him and and so on and then later in the film we see the preacher again in the house clearly indoctrinated into the fight club now like helping the men in the home Mm -hmm. of tyler durden with the goings-on and logistics of the house and i just thought that was a hilarious little detail um of the the man who has the most faith apparently gives in to the cult of the fight club
2: that's 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 really good. I did, I did notice him for like a second and I went, is that the pastor guy? Like I couldn't tell, but that's really, that's a great kind of subtle moment.
3: He's played by Tony Hale. Okay. Um, who I think he was in arrested development. Um, uh, Oh yes. He plays the guy who doesn't, he play like a, like a,
2: like a really repressed grown man in arrested development. Uh, Okay, that was great. All right, well, that was the extra credits of David Fincher's Fight Club. Now, which one of us is Tyler Durden? Are we doing this?
3: Uh, how do we do it? I guess it's. I guess say. it's.
2: I think the easiest way. I think, honestly, the the fact that I'm trying to answer the question probably means that I'm Tyler. I, I'm thinking of like whoever is trying to convince people of their own bullshit. I feel like it's the podcaster. It's got to be a podcast. I
3: think. I mean, you are wearing a pretty hot tank top right now. I am hair slicked back. I am kind of jealous. He looks good, guys. He looks really good. In I his appreciate light.
2: that. I'm gonna really boost up the gain on the volume on you saying that. Um, yeah, I think it's probably it's probably me. Like, I knew that going into asking the question that it was like, who is basically the the most. Susceptible. All right, you,
3: you don't have to say it like that.
2: No, 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 no. It not has nothing to do with about looks, op- obviously, but like it's more about like who is both susceptible and like willing to like talk about their bullshit out loud and like has to go to the podcaster. I'd say between you and Kelsey, I'd say Kelsey too. She's got a podcast.
3: Yeah, true. Yeah. Kelsey's got some Tyler.
2: She does got some Tyler. She's I don't even know if she's gonna listen to this. Should we say some shit? I don't know on a FICO yeah, episode. <laughs> Uh, t- top, um, uh, top three least favorite Kelsey things. So
3: Kelsey is emasculating you in your life. That's right.
2: It is true. Yeah, she like mm-hmm. sometimes she'll just interrupt me on a podcast, and I'll be like, I'm losing it. I'm losing yeah my power in life.
3: You got to go fight someone.
2: I do. Uh so yeah, I don't have no idea how to end this episode. All right, James. Yeah, what, we what? just. <laughs> James, what's going oh, on in life? Uh, anything to <laughs> hold, on, hold
3: on? Let's just go play some video games. We're, we're about to. I don't know.
2: Anything to plug? Because we're getting a little tired. Um, We've had a long teaching weeks. How's yeah. teaching going? How's writing going?
3: uh Writing's good. Teaching's good. um Writing. I'm still trying to get some stuff published. Recently, just finished a pretty long form poem. It was like five pages long, and I might try plugging it somewhere. Um. And I've been doing some graduate work or upcoming graduate work further in English, um, English literature to be specific. So Mm -hmm. earning some more credits towards um, furthering my education. And other than that, um, living a pretty simple, I guess, every man life, but not nearly, not nearly as sad and frustrating.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, are you sure teaching is really hard it's a hard profession you have a by the way this is a very sympathetic audience to educators we have gotten tons of nice messages great emails a lot of people supportive of teachers also we have a lot of teachers listening so to all those teachers shout out that's awesome you all shout out to all the public workers out there and anybody else trying just to make the world a better place oh yeah we appreciate you um, I know you don't give a shit about those and you're tired about those. We appreciate you comments. So you know what? We're starting a fight club and that fight club is... Yes. Gonna, <laughs> uh, it's going to be in uh, Denver, Colorado. Come out here. We'll get this going. Um, okay, cool. Do you want to plug your Letterboxd? Since you just oh my created the Letterboxd, yeah. this is a good time to do it. Thank uh, you for reminding me. I can put it in the description of this episode for anybody interested in sure. following James on his film-watching journey. He watches Guys, a lot I'm of movies. Sh-
3: I'm such a bad film fan, though, because I don't have Letterboxed. And recently, uh, just like as a warm-up question in school, I asked the kids, like, how would you rank different social media outlets? Uh And one of my classes put Letterboxed at the top of social media. And I was like, wow, this kid gets it. They're on top of it.
2: I'll beat you. Ready for this? Yeah, what do you got? I walk into my first block, my AP geography class, and uh, one of my kids, I'm trying to like I'm just doing a kind of like a a warm up about what we learned last class about like I don't know, possibleism or something. And as I'm talking, I see a lot of stairs. I'm like, what's going on? What what are we doing? It's a rough Tuesday morning or something. Like, what's up? And then one of the kids goes, "You know, you're you're on uh, the Letterbox story. Is this your face?" And it was like Letterbox oh had shared our podcast that we did with a few of their hosts. And I was like, I don't know who those people are. I don't know. They're like, this guy looks like you. <laughs> There's no last name, but it's, but it says Trey, isn't that your first name? And I was like, ah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Don't talk to, don't don't (laughs) talk to anybody else. Uh, it was funny that hadn't happened before, but yeah, I think letterbox is, is obviously used by the kids. I didn't, I didn't realize that honestly until that moment. Like I've seen, you know, I've seen that students or that people use that before, but I didn't realize it was that popular. That's pretty
3: cool. Yeah. That surprises me. So the I guess we'll we'll put it in the in the podcast description. Yeah,
2: but. I'll put it in the description. I wonder if me I me and Kelsey don't have individual accounts. We own like our like with a kind of like names to our accounts. Like we both have separate letterboxes, but we don't use them. And I just use the extra credits letterbox like HQ account. Uh, but cool, we'll give you a follow and. We'll let everybody know where to find you on Letterboxd in the description, on Insta in the description. We'll put some of your work in there too, so people can go ahead and read that and support your work. And until next time with James, which I'm sure will be like another fun and complicated episode. We haven't decided what that's going to be yet. Maybe when you come and visit, we can finally do the lighthouse. All right. Until next time, Kelsey and I will be back with probably a Patreon episode next. I would assume it's going to be David Fincher's Zodiac. And then also Emerald Fennell's Saltburn is coming out in a few weeks. We luckily have early releases. We have a few early releases to go to on that film. So listeners, you'll know what we think of Saltburn very soon. We just got Promising Young Woman on Blu-ray because we want to try to do like a, what we do with Emma Sullivan, Shiva Baby, and Bottoms, try to do a, a double feature there and talk about Promising Young Woman and Saltburn possibly. So those are the next few episodes on the feed. It is David Fincher month. We are going to be ending the month as Ridley Scott month And then going into December Like early December Ridley Scott month With Napoleon releasing at the end of this month Starring Joaquin Phoenix And we're going to be covering Ridley Scott's Alien And I am not ready for that uh, So I need some time So I need to leave James, thank you for being on this chaotic episode And I missed you Thanks Thanks for inviting me Yeah.
3: Yeah, I miss you too
2: All right, this has been Trey. Peace.
3: See you.